How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. gentlemen welcome to box office pulp your one-stop podcast for movies madness moxie and tonight mutilated pirate captains just trying to do their best in a magical world filled with rapscallions hellbent on ruining business that's right (laughs) as part of our steven spielberg month we're doing a commentary for hook i think that does it right there like i don't even need to do any more intro that's the perfect summation of the movie anyways i'm your host cody and acting as my schmees are my co-host mike say hello mike I'm sexually aroused by the boot box. Aren't we all? And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I'm a giant in a scene that should have been deleted. <laughs> I thought we were just going to have to clap to make sure, like, you didn't leave the show. <laughs> Come on, Jamie, Come on, say Jamie. something. Come on. We believe in you. <laughs> it would be amazing if I just dropped out of the commentary halfway through because you guys did not have my back. <laughs> that could apply to any episode. It was really weird during the Event Horizon commentary when you guys had to believe in fairies to get me back on. Ah, <laughs> uh, not again. Every episode. Right. Ah, oh, hell. Ah, uh, hell. Speaking of hell, it's time for Hook. We're going to be doing this commentary style, so if you've never listened to Bop in a Movie before, what we're going to do is play the film, and we're going to talk over it. If you want to join us for this, when we give you the countdown, you can hit the play button on your DVD player, Blu-ray player, 4K player, because Hook's available on that now, because why not? And you can watch the film with us and listen to our commentary like we had some sort of hand in making the film. <laughs> well, after all these commentaries, you're just going to shit on us all of a sudden? Like, what <laughs> business do we have to be doing commentaries for movies? Quite frankly, I'm disgusted by the arrogance of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It took Spielberg month to get the truth out of you. That's it. Now that I've properly hyped the audience, uh, before we actually start the commentary, I do have to give you the official drink for the evening. The <laughs> Dirty Shirley. So, what you're going to take is one ounce of grandine, six ounces of ginger ale, 
two ounces of vodka, and then this last one's optional, but you can take two ounces of orange juice. Uh, if you're going to do the orange juice, you can take out a little bit of the ginger ale, just kind of give the drink a little more balance. Up to you, though. For instructions, dump all of that together in a glass. That's it. I put some cherries in mine. Uh, I figured this would be the perfect drink for what we're doing tonight because the Shirley Temple is the quintessential kitty cocktail of my youth. So, you know, it makes sense that I just look for an adult version of a virgin cocktail to go along with a movie about adults trying to remember their inner child. Also, this is a little weird. I don't know about you people at home, but when you had Shirley Temples as a kid, did you make yours with ginger ale? That's what online said, but in my experience, it was always 7-Up and Grenadine. So I'm, I'm very excited to see how weird this drink actually is for my expectations. It certainly doesn't smell great. Yeah, it's a drink. I'm so glad you don't test these first. It's more fun to just uh, go into it. Also, we, we took a while to set up tonight, so the ginger ale has uh, lost its fizz, which does not help. You want fresh ginger ale, folks. Even better. Also, this would be... Yeah, this is uh, the orange juice. Not needed. Don't do the orange juice. And get rid of the ginger ale. You're Sprite. <laughs> you know, why don't you just drink some fucking malt liquor while you're at it? Just Cody, give. how are you Fuck making it, giving wrong. a recipe broken? Wrong. It's just telling it's people how to make a drink. You're already backpedaling on it 30 seconds after you've given the recipe. Just imagine I'm a young version of Jiro from Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Like, I'm still mastering my craft, and it's all about perfection. One day I will have mastered the Dirty Shirley, but it's not tonight. This is like day one where I should really not even be handling the eggs yet. <laughs> I think it's very appropriate that the hook commentary is the one where Cody just loses faith in everything. <laughs> oh, hook. And right. uh, does that mean um, Cody's shadow is alcohol? That sounds correct. We've known that for a long time, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, th this, this, this podcast is going to go dark one day. <laughs> this supposedly family-friendly episode is off to a wonderful start. Just Cody showing up to a recording one night. This is my girlfriend, Shirley. <laughs> I had to go all the way. I had to find a girl named Shirley so I could perfect the dirty Shirley drink. <laughs> Her blood oh, is 90% liquor. <laughs> I have fashioned Shirley from discarded rum bottles. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking Odin Quinn <laughs> <laughs> just you sucking from some kind of weird robot tit of alcohol <laughs> why do this i imagine is the future i deserve this is i'm just imagining that's happening but big rock candy mountain is playing in the background and i'm just having a wonderful time <laughs> and the girls are made of booze <laughs> anyway look at box office pope we are here to talk about the film the black cauldron <laughs> Right, Hook. This movie is nine days long. I keep making that joke. Uh, it still seems true in my head. Uh, so let's get this rolling. Uh, time's a waste in here. Mike, do us uh, the countdown, please. One, two, three. Blam. Uh, the TriStar logo. I know. Does anything say childhood like the TriStar logo? And it's always this your favorite logo. Which, which, if you had to pick up one of the opening logos, which one do you think just perks your ears up the most? New Line. New Line? Mm, yeah, yeah I'm going to have to say New Line. New Line because of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, I always had a fondness for Universal, but that's because of the old school Universal monster movies. Like I the like old the black old and white spinning yeah, globe. 
the old Universal black and white logo is is pretty good. Although I love the hook from like the more recent versions, you know that that always gets you excited. Oh yeah, well it's so epic. Except now Scott Pilgrim ruined it for me. I always think it's going to be eight bit. Kind of like how the Warner Brothers logo now I always think is going to play a little bit of the John Williams Superman theme at the end. (laughs) It never does. It's always very disappointing. All right, all right. Before we get into logo talk anymore, <laughs> uh, let's do a quick rundown of some of the key hook facts, as it were. <laughs> hook facts. It's going to do the entire commentary in five minutes and leave us nothing for the next two and a half hours. Hook facts! Hooked and then I facts. just dive out a window. I'm done. I've given you the hook <laughs> facts. One, hook fact. Directed by Steven Spielberg. That one's a gimme. Two, screenplay by Jim Hart and Malia Scotch Marmo. Small fun fact, there's a story by credit for Nick Castle here. And yes, that Nick Castle. The shape from Halloween Nick Castle. <laughs> I forget he did other things besides like stunt doubling and also had like a, a career doing scripting work. And a director. It's the reason we have Patrick Swayze. I, uh, I don't know how trustworthy IMDb's little trivia facts are, but they mentioned that he had been developing this movie. Nick Castle had been developing this movie for years through the 90s. And then when Steven Spielberg showed interest, the studio had to go to him and be like, hey, could you please fuck off? And then gave him a, like a, a six-figure deal to basically not direct the film. $500,000 to not direct a movie that bombed. That is an amazing deal. story to tell at to parties. <laughs> right. Also, Nick Castle got a credit on the film, like just a story by, so he could be like, I helped, but it's not my fault. So long, suckers. So good for Nick Castle. Uh, he drove away in his Michael Myers car. <laughs> uh, most people already know this. Peter Pan, obviously, is pre-existing material. Uh, from J.M. Barry, which is, is probably the name no one recognizes. Like, everyone understands what Peter Pan is, but no one really actually goes back to the original play. Which came in, around in 1904. It's that old. Uh, it was adapted in novel form in 1911 as Peter and Wendy. Everyone just watches the Disney one, though, so it's like you don't you don't have to go that far back. Yeah. Uh, if you're at all interested in what was going on with Barry whenever he wrote uh, the play and the book, I strongly recommend watching Finding Neverland. Like that's a movie that everyone loved when it came out, but everyone immediately forgot about like a year later. But I think it's really <laughs> special and worth taking another look at. Yeah, and it has Bob Hoskins again. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that guy gets surprising his role. I, I didn't find cast. out until doing research. By the way, he was also Shmee in that uh, Sci-Fi Channel Neverland show. So he's oh, like God, the fixed he? point in time and space. He's made cameos just in things as like even like his real world counterparts in in this movie. <laughs> like that motherfucker loved being Smee. <laughs> Why not? It's one of those things. It's like he did the character perfect. Why even bother having someone else do it? Nothing makes me warmer, like deep down in my soul, than knowing that. During dull moments on set, he would just quietly croon to himself, Hello, is it me you're looking for? 
I wish I wish J.K. Simmons would do a similar thing. Not singing, but would just do a similar thing with his characters. <laughs> like, yeah, J.K. Simmons portrayed uh, J. Jonah Jameson. He's just that version forever. Doesn't matter. If there's a new Spider-Man game, we'll just hire him to do the sounds. There's a new reboot of Spider-Man? Fuck it. He's still J. Joe, Jonah Jameson. It looked like he was going that way for a while. He was Jonah on Ultimate Spider-Man for they a couple years. Yeah. I'm, I'm very frustrated they keep pulling that stuff. He's like, oh, audience will be confused. Nah, fuck him. Audience will deal. Nobody was confused by Judy Dench being M across multiple timelines. No! We want pictures of (laughs) Spider-Man! Yeah, you know what everyone's going to see whenever J.K. Simmons turns around and scowls at fucking 17-year-old Peter Parker? Hell yeah. The universe is right again. And honestly, if you really want it to be different, just put him in blackface. Jesus! Ah, moving along here. <laughs> so this has thrown me off. Uh, another hook fact. We've got John Williams providing the music. And boy, was I weirded out reviewing this movie and listening to the opening section here of John Williams' score. Because, wow, this does not fit what you'd expect of like a high-flying pirate adventure. It There's like a piano like Willie- jazz thing going on right now. It doesn't sound like Williams or the rest of this movie. No, it feels like temp music. Like, they just, fuck, uh, what do we got in the archives? That's fine, use it. I'm going to be perfectly honest. While I adore Hook, nothing that happens before they arrive at England matters. <laughs> I really is... honestly forgot all of this stuff went on. I remember the plane scene, but I don't remember how the kids were kidnapped. I don't remember there being, like, 40 minutes of preamble. All of that went out of my head. So when I rewatched the film, I'm like, what? Did someone sneak deleted scenes into my movie? It's weird because there's not really that much of a reason for there to be this much preamble before they get to England. I know as a kid, I always liked the England stuff. This stuff I always skipped past. So (laughs) it wasn't a a thing of, well, when are we getting to Neverland? It was just, "Eh, this is all kind of chuffa. Even funnier, though, if you look at uh, interviews with Spielberg, he talks about the opening part of the movie as his favorite part. And then he's like, yeah, it all falls apart as soon as they go to Neverland. So this he's like he's basically said like this is the part I like, yeah, the part where Robin Williams is an asshole to his children. Well, if you look at it conceptually, it's it's the most ho- like it's the most honed in part. Like there's the there's the prologue here until they get to Neverland, and then there's the epilogue afterwards. If you look at both of those, clearly Spielberg understands what to do the most like all this is very like honed in it's succinct it has a perfect structured emotional through line everything like everything he's constructing beat by beat for a specific reason and then he gets a little um even though the neverland stuff is better even if he doesn't feel that way it's a little bit more iffy like you can tell he doesn't quite it it kind of starts to get rocky this you can tell, like he's sitting behind a camera, knowing everything he's doing right now is perfectly good. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> I am in close encounters at the moment. I am safe. Yeah. <laughs> also, I just want to say, does that kid like have the baseball sewn to his hand or something? <laughs> it's a... <laughs> that's the most '90s kid thing in the world. He just carries his baseball everywhere. Onto an airplane. Of course you need a catcher's mitt while you're on the airplane. That's a thing. <laughs> I like He's all just the waiting for the angels to win the pendant. 
Where, where was the, the flight attendant to yell at him for just being a dummy? Like, kid, quit throwing a baseball around inside an airplane. Also, I had no idea until re-watching this uh, for this commentary that Dustin Hoffman is the captain. Oh, that too. oh really? <laughs> yeah, it completely went over my head as a kid. Which implies a lot about the reality of this universe that I don't entirely understand. It's like, Shmi showing up at the end is enough of a weird... That is very Like odd. a weird thing I've never quite figured out. But, okay, so there's doubles for... There's a double for Hook, too. I'm not sure what kind of, like, Rick and Morty timeline jumping we're going through here. Right. I'm sure it's and best if we don't think about it. it it's it's very confusing. The whole Neverworld thing, it, it, Neverland thing, is proven to be real. That's like an actual place they go to in the context of the story. It's not like a Wizard of Oz thing where you know they just got a concussion and dreamed the whole deal. The well, kids I, were kidnapped. But well, I, I think um, the the Smee thing is the five seconds of it was all just a dream that they're fucking yeah. they're fucking with you with. I think Hoffman is the captain of the plane was just a, sl a subtle joke. I just think when you combine the two, it looks like it's saying something, but I think it's just them yeah. fucking around making a joke. We'll go with that. Alright, I gotta, I gotta get through my hook facts here. We're moving into real story. <laughs> Cast! Dustin Hoffman, Robin Williams, Julia Roberts, Bob Hoskins, Maggie Smith, Dante Basco, which, really, look at how lucky that guy was. Not only did kids growing up in the 90s love that guy for being Rufio, then kids in the 2000s loved him as Zuko in Avatar The Last Airbender. He has, like, two generations of people that are amazingly dedicated to him as the coolest guy around. I had no idea he was Zuko. That's amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, <laughs> our old friend Dean Cundy did the cinematography because every goddamn movie we, we do on Box Office Pulp has some sort of, like, one degree <laughs> of Dean Cundy going on. Can we just be the Cundy cast? The Cundy cast. That'd be fun. The guy's done so many great things. Uh, we'll awesome. get more into Cundy later, because this is a weird departure from his typical output. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, not to interrupt, Hook Facts. Hook Facts! You've subscribed Maggie, to Hook Facts! Look at Maggie Smith being old and frail in 1991. Isn't that a fucking weird thing? I think she was only like 50 or like 55 when they made yeah. this. It's just yeah. amazing old lady makeup that predicted what she'd look like in 20 years. It's freaky. Yeah, uh, it's good acting too. She, she she sells that old thing without being comically old, like just shaking all the time or anything weird. But yeah, that, that really threw me off on the rewatch. I'm like, wait, did she hit 90 in the 90s and just stay that way? Did she just age backwards because she's less sturdy here than she is as McGonagall? Oh, yeah. Acting. Anyways, back to your subscription of Hook Facts. <laughs> Film was edited by Michael Kahn. The release date was December 11th, 1991. That blows my mind because I had some sort of false memory in my head of seeing Hook in theaters. Which I would have been, like, one, so that's not a thing my parents would have done, or I would have been able to remember. So I don't know if there was, like, a screening, a rescreening, or re-release at some point in my life, and I remember it from that, 
But for years, I would have sworn you up and down that Hook was like a mid-90s movie, something made in like 95. So yeah, going back and seeing the release date was in 1991 blew my mind. I, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around its placement in the chronology of everything. Weirds Hook, me out. Hook was made during the, um, what I like to call the magic hour. <laughs> it's like this time period in film between like the years... 87, 88, and like 93 and 94, where a bunch of particularly like films of this kind of tone came out, but also like there was a there was this period where effects and like sets and all this got amazing, like what you could do, but only certain types of films could do them. So you get <laughs> stuff like this, where it's like it's super special because. Like, okay, this is the one that's going to come out for the next two years. This is all <laughs> Hollywood was, can afford. That was the era that gave us the Goonies, wasn't it? Um, Close to it, yeah. Yeah. I'm that. still just flummoxed that this came out before Jurassic Park. I know. Crazy. Also, to, to go off your point, Mike, about the budget of this thing, uh, originally it was supposed to be about a $40 million picture, and Spielberg went way over budget. It ended up somewhere between $60 and $80 million. People disagree. But that still ranked it as like one of the five most expensive films ever made kind of things. <laughs> Which is kind of quaint now because you look at it like, oh, it was a $70 million film. Ooh. Christopher Nolan regularly like gets $200 million for his movies. <laughs> but that just shows you how much things have changed between 1990 and 2019. Yeah, th this was a classic Steven Spielberg troubled over budget production. Dude was probably having Jaws flashbacks <laughs> while ordering <laughs> these kids around. God damn it! I knew I shouldn't have filmed in the real Neverland. So, other reasons I think that Spielberg does not have that many warm and fuzzy feelings about this movie, other than being able to work with Robin Williams, is that I can, uh, like Mike was saying earlier. There's very few moments in this movie where you feel like Spielberg is 100% confident. And I imagine like between that and like stuff like drama with Julia Roberts and lots of uh, small petty stuff, like I can imagine this just not being a fun experience for him at all and that really coloring his perception of the film. That and yeah. just the fact that it was kind of a dud critically and commercially like to this day, this movie still polarizes people like crazy. And and the funny thing was, the movie didn't lose money at all. It made $300 million worldwide, over $100 million in America. Uh, I, I think part of that was kind of tarnished because they had a pretty hefty profit split on the gross revenue of the movie with the, the talent, basically. Like Spielberg, Williams, and Hoffman together split 40% of TriStar's gross revenue on the film. So they didn't make a ton, and then they had to give about half of that money back to key players. But really, when the movie came out, it was the fourth highest grossing film worldwide in 1991, and the sixth highest grossing domestic film. So it wasn't like it was a complete failure. It just cost so much that you know people were expecting Titanic money. One thing I want to go back and point out that is not a hook fact. <sighs> a, a moment ago, we got, in my mind, the defining... Spielberg kind of scene where you have a family that is just for no reason whatsoever just the most chaotic thing in the world like every kid has to be yelling something very loud the dad has to be like taking a phone call 
that's demanding all of his attention while being yelled at, and like for some reason someone has to like throw a baseball through the room. The Spielberg chaos family is just like the thing he always does. But the <laughs> weird thing here is, in most of his films, when that breaks out, the parent just kind of deals with it because that's their life. Like, oh, kids are noisy. In this one, Robin Williams just becomes an asshole and is like, "No, shut up, go to hell, children." <laughs> Which was very alarming. Like, holy fuck, that that got real fast. That just just it feels so out of place from what we know of Spielberg and how he normally handles these things. Yeah. Normally, those films seem like they're kind of lively and lived in because, hey, this is just a wacky real family. We're not being careful about our lines or cute about any of it. It's just chaos. This one, no, children will shut up. It's it's very off putting. It makes I think um, in the prologue section of this more unique than what you would normally get. And it's I think it's because Spielberg's pulling from. He's talked about this before. How he's kind of mirroring his relationship with his father growing up, and also that he felt he had kind of slow in a very Stephen King kind of way slowly started moving into the. Uh, Peter Banning way of doing things. Like, he became sort of kind of not spending much time with his family, became kind of a workaholic. So, I, people kind of look at Hook, um, I believe, is Spielberg maybe exercising some sort of um, Peter Pan complex demons or something about, you know, his, his more family friendly fare. But I think it's him actually working through adulthood in a, in a way that he's never really done film before and like looking at himself in more of a harsh, like I'm a mirror of my father who I did not really like. And that's horrifying me. That's why I find the, uh, cultural dismissal of hook. So disheartening is this is one of the movies where Spielberg seems to have the most to say. It's obviously one of his most personal ones. I don't know. Uh, it probably would have been more accepting if Robin Williams had flown off of the aliens at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, family. My planet needs me. <laughs> I think people That's also have... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go on. I was going to say, uh, you look at Steven Spielberg's output before this movie. Like, what were the last couple of movies he made? Like, Empire of the Sun, Always, The Color Purple. Like, this was... Like peak grown up Spielberg, so I that's one of the things I find very beautiful about Hook is it is very much about a director who cut his teeth doing fun stuff, going, reaching like the middle of his career and saying, "Can can I go back to childhood innocence for a little while? Can I just be a kid again? Can we start ambling once more?" No, the answer is no. For kind of the final time, too. I mean, he, of course, like Jurassic Park came after this, but even all that was different, I think, than, like, you, you, this is the last of, like, E.T. Spielberg. Yes, this is, it's swan song. Hold on, hold on. I rewatched E.T. this morning, and goddamn, that was a much different movie than my memory had it. <laughs> that happens to everybody when they go back to rewatch E.T. Just these, t like, it starts off like it still wants to be the horror movie it was designed to be originally. Like, even though it's just aliens walking through the forest, like, there's creepy score, the trucks pull up in the middle of the night. Later on, E.T., like, has that traumatic experience where he's basically dead inside of the operating scientist tent, and there's the weird 
like psychic connection between him and Elliot. So he's getting drunk while Elliot's at school. So Elliot's <laughs> drunk. There's frogs being released. It's a weird thing. That that movie is very odd. <laughs> a kid shouts penis breath at one point. <laughs> yes, and the mom just laughs it off. E.T. is way di- No one remembers most of the other stuff that happens in the movie. They, they, they remember, like, the bike going across the moon. E.T., phone home. You know, those scenes. They don't remember the frog bits. They don't remember E.T. getting trashed on cores. Well, that's the genius of that movie. That's why it's the perfect family movie. You got the spectacle for the kids, the uh, kid drama for the older kids, and all of the adult themes for the adults. That's why you can revisit that over and over and over again throughout your life. Also, from from E.T.'s point of view, what a clusterfuck that whole situation was. Like, he shows up on Earth right around Halloween, so he has no concept of what's going on. All of a sudden, everyone just decides to put on costumes. For all he knows, that's what people do every day. <laughs> what a what a weird experience for that alien. He never gets real food. All he gets is, like, candy. He probably just assumes people only eat sugar. Yeah, I would love to see his debriefing after he gets back on Planet E.T. <laughs> He has all the shared psychic connections with Elliot, so he thinks like their school is just killing animals all day long and dissecting them. All of those children are fatherless. <laughs> so look at this Spielberg-ass dog here. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Oh, I'm I'm almost done with my Spielberg facts. Let's let's wrap. Uh, I'm sorry, my hook facts. Spielberg facts, totally different Hook. Sheet. There, you timed it. Hook. <laughs> Hook. It's close. Hook. <sighs> Still occasionally rattle around my house going, Hook. 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 Forever and ever. <laughs> so before we mentioned the critical response to the film, and I wanted to go into that slightly more because it was surprisingly tepid for Spielberg, uh, the film currently holds out of archive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, a 28%, which is... I didn't check to see how all of Spielberg's films line up, but I would imagine that's got to be on the lower end, if not bottom, of Spielberg's receptions. Yeah. And the critics' consensus is listed at as, the look of Hook is lively indeed, but Steven Spielberg directs on autopilot here, giving in too quickly to his sentimental syrupy qualities, which, ouch, that one burns a little bit. And even uh, Roger Ebert had this to say, the failure in Hook is its inability to reimagine the material to find something new, fresh, or urgent to do with the Peter Pan myth. Lacking that, Spielberg should simply have remade the original story straight for this generation. Which I don't know if I totally agree with that. That's such an I odd like, sentiment. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, you should have remade it, or it's not original enough. Like, I don't really... <laughs> yeah... I feel like he is trying new things here. The themes might be similar, but if they were brand new themes, it wouldn't feel like Peter Pan. Yeah. Yeah. So, eh, Ebert wasn't always perfect in his criticism, so, I, you know, I'm allowed to disagree with him. What I love is, like, the uh, the cherry on top of that is in the 2000s, they did a remake of Peter Pan that was just the book, and everyone slept on it. <laughs> Which is also uh, another... Uh, Peter Pan movie I would strongly recommend it's not great by any stretch of the imagination but it's about as good of a live action Peter Pan movie as you can get yeah is it slightly less racist than the uh, 1950 version slightly okay that's good 
But I love the so um, I, the horror of this sequence. Like it's just, I, I love whenever Spielberg goes into horror movie territory briefly. I love how Hook is treated like he's fucking Satan in this movie. <laughs> Until we meet him, like very shortly, it's going to be Hook hosting like baseball games and having a wacky fun time. Here, it's he breaks into your house like the Candy Man and just scrapes the walls and steals your children and leaves threatening notes. I feel like this that's this movie's greatest Achilles heel, and it's a weird Achilles to have, to have because Hoffman as Hook is fucking delightful and is perfect for this movie, but Spielberg does such a great job of establishing him in these scenes as the ultimate evil and waits so long to reveal him that Anything that isn't, like, Sutter Kane is a little disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> actually, kind of, I, I, actually, as an adult, I've gone back and kind of enjoyed the maybe unintentional gotcha of that. Like, it builds Hook up so much that you, I feel like it gives them more license to make him weird. I can see what you mean by that. At least for me, personally, like, I, I think it almost builds, because of how evil they build him up, you still continue to buy that he's evil, even though he's... When you eventually get to know him, he's essentially just... he He's a, he's actually the character with the Peter Pan complex, which I've always been kind of fascinated with the switcheroo of that. Huh, can, can we get into the fact that this movie is called Hook, even though it's not told from Hook's perspective? And I think it's, it's not... just a cool name. Yeah. I think that's it. Like, maybe that... It was know. changed by a producer sometime in the late 80s after Spielberg um, abandoned his original version. I think it was just... That would just, make more sense. Uh, this seems more marketable to us. Just stuck around. I was I also I... confused by this note. Right now they're talking about the fact... Hey, Phil Collins. Uh, that <laughs> there's a literary history that connects Hook to the family. Like, in this version of the world... Peter Pan was a real story that was written, but apparently we find out was all just based on truth. But then we have the multiple hooks in different realities, and it's all it makes me go cross-eyed trying to think of how this all plays together. Uh, I always just take it as Dracula logic. Like Dracula can exist in a world of Dracula because they just made a book about him. I think it'd be easier for me to comprehend if, like, everyone had clear memories of what was going on. But you have, like, different people that forget things, and you have certain people that remember only partial things, and characters who apparently went back and forth between worlds. Remember Grant Morrison's know. quote about the, uh, the talking lobster? <laughs> the I, I think that. it's very much that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Damn it, I uh, want to know how this all fits together. It has to make sense. We skipped past it a little bit. Can we just take a moment to appreciate that perfect movie trailer moment that Spielberg gifted America <laughs> with? Okay, he's back. <laughs> I, I love whenever characters unabashedly speak in rhyme for dramatic reasons. It does not happen enough <laughs> in modern fiction. <laughs> All right, here, here's my last set of hook facts before I shut up for the next two hours. There's been, no surprise, a shit ton of Peter Pan movies and adaptions over the years. Uh, sticking to 
film and TV. We've got Peter Pan, which was first done in 1924 as a silent film. Then there was the 1953 Disney version of Peter Pan. Uh, there was a TV musical in 1976. Then there was Hook, 91. Uh, Return to Neverland, the 2002 direct-to-video Disney sequel to Peter Pan. Then there was 2003's Peter Pan. Uh, there was an anime, uh, Peter Pan, no Boken. Really? There was. I know nothing about it other than it exists. Can we watch that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if it can still be found. According to Wikipedia, it was a thing. I want to uh, see anime Captain Hook so badly. Oh, I bet it'd be amazing. He just looks uh, like Alucard. <laughs> <laughs> then in the 1990s, apparently, there was an animated show called Peter Pan and the Pirates. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Oh, yeah. And most recently, we had the 2015 Pan. That was <laughs> panned at the box office. Thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll be here all, all show. You mean that movie that just looks like one of the fake movies from Entourage? <laughs> oh, look at the crazy movie Vince is in this season. <laughs> Honestly, By going through that list, though, I thought there would be like 40 more Peter Pans out there. But I, I guess the character is so popular, people don't necessarily want to adapt it. Well, like, there is it's, like a hundred Tinkerbell movies. <laughs> that too, that. there are. There's a lot of Tinkerbell movies. But I, I think it's just Peter Pan is an iconic character that's woven into pop culture. So there's enough references and jokes to the character throughout television and other little things that you don't have to go out and actually make a full adaption of Peter Pan. It's kind of the Robin Hood thing where he's almost too big. Also, I just want to say I want so badly to see a version of this scene play out exactly like this with this score. But she opens up the book and it's the Great Red Dragon. <laughs> do you see I know what I must become now why is he telling Maggie Smith he has no pity <laughs> all the shadow play in this movie but yeah you make a very good point it's we always weird whenever you look up the adaptations of all these larger than life characters and then you find out there's like 10 uh, Robin Hood movies Meanwhile, Sherlock Holmes has been adapted a thousand times. Oh, God, yeah. And somehow they keep making that one popular. Every time Sherlock Holmes comes out, people buy into it. Every time there's a new Robin Hood, people go, do we need this? And then they don't go to the theater. Like, I, I think the last three times we've seen Robin Hood, it's been a commercial flop, right? Yeah. yeah it's, it's always strange. Cause, oh, another Robin Hood movie? Like, yeah, those are coming out like every three years. <laughs> Such an odd sentiment. If you want to watch a great video, um, Patrick Willems did a a video on Robin Hood and you know stuff like Zorro and whatnot, and you know, what Hollywood and what even audience reaction gets wrong about uh, the current adaptions of those and how to actually go about it. And really, it just comes down to just make a normal, goddamn Robin Hood movie because we haven't gotten one in a really long time. Oh yeah, you can't each keep person recontextualizing. has to have a twist and a gimmick. Yeah, you can't recontextualize Robin Hood when you have not established Robin Hood. Well, the they last... all want to be like prequel or origin stories for Robin Hood, which is frustrating because we all know enough about Robin Hood at this point where we don't need that. If you want to do a new version of it, fuck it. Just make sure he's been on operation for a few years. We'll get the whole thing. Yeah, I never understand the logic of let's do Robin Hood, but without any of the things that Robin Hood does that make him Robin Hood. It's like, I don't think we're really, we're not invested in who he is as a person. 
that's one of the weirdest things about watching Ridley Scott's version of Robin Hood. He just, <laughs> the whole thing is basically one big, hey, this is Little John before anyone calls him that. This is, you know, leading up to this and this, and next time we'd have the sheriff of not, you know, Nottingham play a big part. It's all hints, which is insane. Like, why spend $200 million to basically be one giant cock tease? Yeah, you're not exactly uh, watching Russell Crowe become Batman. <laughs> I think if they just hadn't called Ridley Scott's Robin Hood Robin Hood, if they had stripped that of references to the Robin Hood story, like the hinted ones, people would have liked that movie a lot more. Oh, I, don't, yeah. I don't think it would be a, you know, a universally loved classic or anything. The movie's a, a little flabby in my mind. But yeah, it'd be something. If you divorce it from context, I think folks would be way more into it. If you just call that motherfucker Loxley. Anything. Archer. I don't, I don't care. You could, you could have just named it Russell Crowe in a period movie. People would have been like, all right, yeah, I'm kind of digging this. All right, I like that yeah. subgenre. Just imagine if he'd done, like, Kingdom of Heaven, but it was directly related <laughs> to, like, a literary classic. I thought you were going to say, but it's also Peter Pan. <laughs> but it's also Peter Pan. Orlando Bloom is Peter Pan. Also, he's he's killing a lot of people in Crusades. So, uh, before we leave the subject of Robin Hood, I just want to say one thing. Uh, while I agree, we really just need a normal Robin Hood movie, I will not allow myself to be put into the ground until I've seen a Robin Hood movie where the Sheriff of Nottingham is secretly Robin Hood, and it's a secret identity superhero thing. Played by Christian Bale. That premise Shame. has been right open forever, and no one's touched it. They Well, they, they paid for that concept, and then Ridley Scott went, what if I destroyed that, and we just didn't use it? <laughs> that was I so also want to say, happening. man, this is such a weird alternate opening for Hereditary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you want to see the weirdest thing in the world, watch outtakes of Julia Roberts knocking the... Uh, the dolls around and accidentally copping a feel off of the Barbie's gigantic tit. <laughs> it does feel a little off. We were, we were so busy talking about Robin Hood, we neglected to mention Julia Roberts was now a major part of the film. <laughs> all, right, all of a sudden it becomes like A-list actor special effects porn. Yes. <laughs> it's like, look at this. Yeah, and speaking of, before we reach the fantastical part of this movie, I really want to point out something that really struck me in this rewatch, which is how does Robin Williams manage to be this amusing playing a boring straight man? How is that possible? Also, hey, Carrie Fisher and George Lucas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that was another... uh... Fun little hook fact. You said you were done. Uh, I just made this one up. It wasn't on my fact sheet. Fisher uh, basically started her career as an unofficial ghost strip fixer-upper with this film. Uh, Apparently it was her responsibility to go and punch up all of Tinkerbell's dialogue because it was really not good before she got her hands on it. That's an amazing thought. Every time Tinkerbell speaks in this movie, Princess Leia is speaking for her. <laughs> and probably swearing in the background while smoking a cigarette like, goddamn men can't write a script. <laughs> uh, I just don't... love the I... I was going to say, I just love the idea of her writing the lines. This is an emotion I'm too small to feel. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Oh, I love that transition. Um, going back to Williams, honestly, I would make the argument this is probably one of Williams' best goddamn performances. And he's had some great performances, but the amount of stuff he gets to go through in one character. Like, he, like, Banning is really fucking unlikable and a piece of shit. Oh, terrible. Yeah, and Williams had a really hard time grasping that. Yeah, didn't he say, like, that was, like, this was his greatest challenge as an actor because he just wanted to be goofy? Yeah, he didn't get to do I'm any of his tricks. Us. and It's such a weird pull for this guy because, you know, if you think of his career, he did all the stand-up stuff, he did Mork and Mindy. He was, you know, the oversized comedy actor, and they wanted him to spend the first 40 minutes of this movie basically being a bad dad who is very stuffy, who is just shitty to his children, overly serious. There's There's precious few moments for him to use his gifts, and he has to really do some different stuff. That said, going back and looking at the filmography's history, boy, I was confused. Again, I thought this movie took place much later than the 90s, when like Robin Williams was kind of king of the box office world. Not really the case here. If you go back to the stuff he was doing, he'd had the Dead Poet Society in 89, uh, the Fisher King in 91. I don't think the Fisher King was even like a financial huge success. No, that's a Gilliam movie. It can't yeah. be. No. But he had one or two along the way. Uh, but like he, he kind of started off with more dramatic roles than his comedy pieces, which yeah. I always thought was the opposite. Normally, I thought it was the thing where you know someone starts as a comedy actor and then decides, I want to do the number 23 now. <laughs> it trips me out that Dead Poet Society is 89. I always peg that for mid-90s. Yeah, right. people forget that Williams, uh, like when he transitioned to movies, Shmee. like he... Yeah, he did shit like Popeye and whatnot, but he got into dramas very, very quickly. He was, honestly, by the time he did stuff like Hook, it was akin to, this is a, you know, a little bit uh, hyperbole, but a little bit like Christian Bale being Batman. It's like he was a name, everyone kind of knew him, and he was slightly prestige, but he wasn't like this kind of actor, really. Yeah, He wasn't well, a Spielberg guy, yeah. Well, look at it. Hook was 91. Aladdin didn't come out until 92. Toys was 92. Mrs. Doubtfire was 93. Jumanji was 95. Jack was 96. Flubber, 97. Goodwill Hunting, 97. Uh, and then What Dreams May Come, 98. And Patch Adams were in 98. I mean, he had a great stretch through the 90s. Oh, I mean, yeah. All of those that are was, huge films. That where Williams remember. was king. He still had a relationship with Disney at that time. So, yeah, that's kind of stunning to me, though, that Hook was one of his <laughs> earlier films. I love apparently. the lunacy of that shot. Why? Why is it electric? Uh, and apparently they could only film that once because they did it in camera with flash bulbs, and it was just a pain in the ass. Uh, can I just say, I always feel like the mark of a truly memorable movie is when it loves its supporting characters, and Smee just got introduced like he's Mary Jane Watson. In a Superman movie. <laughs> and ki- and he kind of is to hook. <laughs> Hoskins oh, having the oh, time oh. of his goddamn life. Listen oh, to delightful. 
Uh, listen to that theme. Oh, it's just... See, now that we're in Neverland, the John Williams really comes out, and this stuff grabs you. Like, it's big sweeping emotion, and it's the stuff Williams can just put out like none other. <laughs> Mike, I've, I've been waiting days to ask you this. Do you agree this is the greatest Silver Age Joker performance we never got? Oh, yes, especially the voice. <laughs> Could you imagine him being like Cesar Romero, aristocratic Joker? <laughs> he has the mustache. Everything I would want out of it. I mean, Smee is pretty much just Silver Age Harley here. <laughs> he's he's Pirate Bob. So this is what, uh, going back to something I said earlier about uh, the switcheroo of Hook being the one with the Peter Pan complex. Think about this in context of the film. He just comes out to do a speech about past glories and how awesome he used to be when he was younger. <laughs> it's definitely appropriate for the themes of the movie, especially at the end where he takes off the wig and he's just a balding, white-haired old man. Yeah. I I think people kind of... It's strange. With Hook, people want uh, the themes to be more, like, hitting you over the head. But I actually... Um, hey, Glenn Close. Um, I <laughs> I like how kind of back and forth between subtle and in-your-face they are. Because it arrives at a, a murkier spot that I think most... Most people who take in these kind of stories have a hard time grasping, especially, arguably, for children trying to grasp it. This isn't... This is obviously a, a children's film, but the main theme of it isn't, like, going back to your childhood or, or it's not growing up. It's this in-between place of, uh, like re-embracing your childhood and, like, facing it again and understanding it and then but having to go back to being an adult without losing sight of of those old imaginations and, and whatnot, while Hook just wants to go back to being younger. Like, he's the black and white one. Like, that's on the villain. Peter be, re, like becomes Peter Pan again, but he has to go back to be a father and, and be an adult, but with that inside of him. Like, it's it's a harder idea to understand, I think, if you don't connect with that, um, it makes sense that you don't connect with the film at all, because that's all there really is. You might have said some very deep things, but I was very distracted because Glenn Close just got thrown in a box with scorpions. When you were a kid, nothing dark. in fiction. Yeah, nothing in fiction is scarier than the boo box. Terrifying. <laughs> Again. This is a Spielberg entertainment movie, and theoretically a light one. It's PG. It's a big, goofy comedy pirate thing right now. And the villain's introduced. We finally see him face-to-face -face where he goes, ah, let's just throw someone in a box with several scorpions and then not talk about that anymore. <laughs> I always remember the boo box being way more involved and taking up more screen time. It's yeah, like, yes. Same. I think that's, like, the, the, the thesis of this movie. Everything makes such a big impact to children. As an adult, I think if you watch this movie 
for the first time, it would probably not grab you nearly in the same way that it would as a kid. I remember seeing this as a kid, and you think, oh my god, Rufio's the coolest guy in the world, and such a tragedy when he's murdered. But honestly, that goes by pretty darn quick. The the fight with Hook at the end? Kind of like a surprising beat, and then they forget about Rufio right after he dies. Is this movie's jazz? <laughs> oh, but as a kid, jazz. that's demoralizing. <laughs> like you see Rufio go down, and it, like in your version of the movie, everyone is just, you know, destroyed by the death of Rufio. So it's one of those weird deals of nostalgia and perception not really matching up with the content of the film. Which is weirdly, like, appropriate for the movie. Like, you even get that great moment with Hook at the end where Peter's telling him how unimpressive he is. And he's like, well, to a 10-year-old, I'm terrifying. <laughs> Which is not a cool thing to hear Dustin Hoffman say in 2019, <laughs> let me tell you. Plus, I, I love you so much as an actor. Why do you have to be such a bad person, Dustin Hoffman? <laughs> what a great joke. Really the appreciate amount, the that amount joke. of people who get shot in this movie. <laughs> but again, think of the length of this movie. It's two hours and 20 minutes long. For a, a child, like an eight-year-old in a movie theater, that's an eternity. That's, this that's is so epic. long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that has an impact on it. If you watch a two-and-a-half-hour film as a 10-year-old or something, and you're actively engaged in it, boy, that's got to be a, such a different experience from an, an adult watching a normal-length movie. The impression it has to make on you has got to be so big. I think that also speaks to something Spielberg's good at, which this movie is very long for a child. It is children's movies are just not this long normally. No, they're ninety minutes. Yeah, um, but the fact that Spielberg knows to ha how to play certain emotions and certain story beats because they're going to impress on a child who's going to process them differently than adults. Where an adult, a movie for adults that that's this long. Uh, things are much more dragged out and uh, plot points are, are ruminated on uh, much strongly. And if they're not, then it's a failure. But in a children's film, film, you can get away with certain things. Like even a Rufio... A a long way. Yeah, even kind of Rufio being forgotten about. Not saying that was entirely intentional, but there are certain things Spielberg does throughout the film that are intentional in that regard. Uh, a child's going to understand this and be able... And that's all the child needs. And then we can move on and just keep going, just keep the story, story beats going and forever moving. And to a child, Hook never felt that long to me. Like the fact that it nah. even turned out to be two hours and 20 minutes when I got older and revisited it blew my mind because I thought this oh, was yeah. like an hour and a half tops. <laughs> Again, I, I forgot all the stuff before Neverland existed. And then you, you just. It feels like someone took this movie and added a bunch of scenes that I forgot about. <laughs> I was like, can I just say Bob Hoskins in 1991 just said his mind's been gentrified. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag wokes me. Oh, he's turned into a Kmart man. <laughs> now, there's a scene that's missing from this sequence that I can understand why it was cut out. But by itself, I utterly adore it, where Hook gets his men to hoist him all the way up there uh, by a rope uh, to taunt Peter. 
and he whispers in his ear, I wanted to kill Peter Pan, but you did it for me, didn't you? <laughs> like, in addition to that being a great line, I love the symbolism of that. Like, yeah, Peter theoretically can fly, but Hook has a bunch of guys. <laughs> That's the relationship between the two of them. Peter is alone. Hook has a crew. So him finding the Lost Boys later has more of a thematic significance. Like, yeah. It would have been weird in the context of the movie, but I really wish they could have saved that. It would have been even darker than it already is, though. <laughs> Kids can only take so much. Also, like going back to what you were saying earlier about Hook, Mike, I love how aware of his own mythology and his own role in mythology Captain Hook is in this movie. Like, all he wants to do is take part in a grand struggle of good and evil like he used to. Yeah, it's very, it's very uh, death of the family. Um, going back to the Joker <laughs> connection. But yeah, it's like, and then there's almost a resentment that Peter moved on with his life. Like, yeah, when he when Hook sees Peter be Peter Pan but still be a father, that thing Hook briefly attempted to do when Smee was like, "No, don't kill yourself. You should be a father to these kids," because this movie's dark as shit. Randomly, um, <laughs> like Hook does have resentment the fact that he's just stuck like being some storybook version of himself and because that's all he knows how to be like like no i have to fulfill the goddamn captain hook part also sexuality awakening what a, what a, we just went from peter not being able to save his children and hook just casually going kill them all and we went from that darkness to peter making out with mermaids under the water in a scene totally divorced from everything we just saw there's a lot of divorced scenes in this film <laughs> but stuff like this that i think is what spielberg talked about when um he said i actually have a quote it's just from last year um i believe um let's see if i can find it it is uh, I felt like a fish out of water making hook i didn't have confidence in the script i had confidence in the first act and i had confidence in the epilogue i didn't have confidence in the body of it I didn't quite know what I was doing, and I tried to paint over my insecurity with production value. The more insecure I felt about, the bigger and more colorful the sets became. And that's where you get stuff like the mermaids. Like, it's not, it doesn't connect it. It's just whimsical, magical world stuff. That's really interesting on its own and cool, and it's fascinating to see in a movie. But there's no emotional through line in it, because I think that's when Steelberg starts getting lost and what to do with the tone. It, this was... Yeah. It's like 1942 part two form or something. Like, it's too big for him to quite wrap his head around, I think. Very much so. Also, I am still convinced that that mermaid scene is the only reason we got the plot to On Stranger Tides. <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> someone that else scene thinks that. Jack Rob Marshall was sitting yes. in a room and just saw that scene. He was consumed. All right. One one thing I want to go back and talk about is uh, cinematographer Dean Cundey's involvement in this picture. So we've talked about Dean Cundey a lot on this show, but if you haven't listened to our previous episodes, he was primarily known for his uh, 
work with John Carpenter. You know, work like Halloween, Escape from New York, stuff that was very dark, like bathed in darkness, and he filmed Shadows. This movie is all very bright. It, it's a, a complete 180 from his typical output, and I was stunned to realize this was a Cundy picture when I was doing my research. Because it just feels so different from everything he's given us. You know, I guess part of that image I have in my head is when he was doing his work with the Carpenter, those were all low-budget movies. Like, Halloween was incredibly small-budgeted and filmed very quickly. So you can't get into some of the techniques that you would do in a film like Hook, which has all the money in the world in comparison. But uh, another part of this would have to be the color palette. Besides it all being very brightly lit, the film has kind of like a, a, a fuzzy, bright look to it. Yeah. Like everything's been diffused a little bit, and it's it's so unique compared to, you know, Halloween 1 and 2 and 3. Everything is very dreamlike, even uh, just the first act and the, the epilogue. Rufio. Yeah, dreamy. Um. <laughs> dream, dreamlike would be a good way to say it. So, God, I, I had to go and make a list of like Dean Cundy movies that he has worked on, and it's like ninety percent of my childhood. There's Halloween one, two, three, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, all three Back to the Future movies, Big Trouble in Little China, Hook, uh, Death Becomes Her, Jurassic Park, The Flintstones, Casper, Apollo thirteen, Flubber, and uh, he was. Uh, the second unit director for Deep Rising. So it's like, wow, that guy did a lot of really big things, and yet his look apparently was adaptable enough where he could make something like Back to the Future and The Fog and have them both be unique entities where you would be surprised to find out it was the same guy behind both of them. And it's funny he did uh, The Flintstones, because I actually think look-wise that and this have a lot in common. And not... Necessarily with uh, a l- the color palette, yes. And uh, yeah. Hook has the then a fuzzy, washed-out quality. But yeah. Cundy... Flintstones is much more crisp. Yeah, uh, Cundy did something I, I, I've not seen a lot of people able to do with, particularly like the 90s set worlds that were created, which is how Cundy filmed this and filmed the Flintstones. Um... Are like this stuff. This is just a real world. Like it doesn't feel like. However, he he does the coloring, uh, uh, the the specific lighting. It's all real, and the fact that it's a set kind of falls away. Yeah, it's what I always love about the Flintstones. As much as that movie does not work on any real level, I've all I'm always so impressed by how it's just the Flintstones. It's just yeah. real. I will. I have no shame. I will watch the Flintstones if it's on TV. Oh, same. If I'm like visiting my parents and the Flintstones are on, I'm like great. I guess I'm watching this for the next hour. No, Stone Age Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> oh, it's got that Goodman too. How can you say no? The Flintstones actually has a really good cast. Shockingly good. Rick Moranis, a young Halle Berry, oh, as yeah. the villain. <laughs> eh, also, like a femme fatale she's you know, a co-villain yeah. kind of thing she's also, she's she's not that bad i was about to say are those flowers related to the horny flower from the brave little toaster oh i was thinking it was like the uh the dragon snaps from Coraline. 
Those flowers get around. A lot of casting. <laughs> Welcome to this 90s movie. We have skateboards. I remember reviewers at that time really put off because it was stupid there were skateboarders because it was the 90s, but... I mean, <laughs> that's just an odd, like, criticism to have. People were I mean, really it's... mad about skateboarding in general at the time. <laughs> it's a reinvention of Hook, and they're supposed to be eternal kids, so I'm not that upset by the idea of them doing kid things. Like, what if they, anything, like... they should have, like, some Razor scooters in there to go along with their basketball <laughs> hoops. Like, what are they supposed to do? Be playing stickball like it was still the 20s? Like, <laughs> They're all I on mean... penny farthings. I mean, according to the Rufio origin movie that Dante Vasco made, he was abducted in modern times somehow. (laughs) Time has no place here. I I think it's important for us to go over some of the other talent involved behind the scenes on this thing. Because honestly, it's kind of incredible. Uh, Obviously, it's a Spielberg movie, so Michael Kahn uh, edited it. That's kind of a given. But um, Norman Garwood is the production designer. And here's just a couple other... If you don't know that name, here's a couple other things that Garwood has been production designer on. Brazil. Your house and childhood. The Princess Bride. Glory. Misery. Hook. Cutthroat Island. Lost in Space, which may be bad, but looks kind of amazing. (laughs) Their version of Robbie the Robot's pretty... Wait, am I getting my robots mixed up? What's the it's robot Robbie. from Lost in Space? Yeah, okay, it's Robbie. Their version of Robbie was fascinating. I love that. Yeah, uh, this one's this last one is just for you, Jamie. Entrapment. <laughs> That's blackmail. No, it's not. It's entrapment. <laughs> the set decorator is Garrett Lewis, who has done... As some of these are kind of funny, but some are actually related in interesting, um, interesting ways. But uh, the Monster Squad, aforementioned Glory, Pretty Woman, Misery, Backdraft, Hook, Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire, appropriately The Shadow, another <laughs> '90s set porn world. Uh, face off. Just another one, just for just for you, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I am Castacane. <laughs> and then the great Anthony the Powell. Reaction. <laughs> if a kid just started feeling my face, I'd have the same reaction as Robin Williams here. Oh, maybe if I don't move, he can't see me. <laughs> this magic this black is the Genesis child. of Jurassic Park. And, and also, the costume designer was Anthony Powell. Of course, did, you know, Indiana Jones and Gatla's other things. So, the uh, talent extended far beyond just Spielberg and Williams and all that. Like, this is a, a soup of just. People who are the best at what they do. Definitely. Yeah, speaking of, like, speaking of, like, the, the visual look of this movie, is it just me, or is this this one sequence in particular always look like a moving Drew Struzan painting? Yeah. Something a lot about of the, the movie glow does. of it. Yeah. 
I mean, he did do the poster for it, so it all comes together. Remember the old days, apparently back to 91, where you were just expected to get Drew Struzan to draw a painting <laughs> of, like, everyone's faces and call it a day? Hope uh, had I, the I best fucking days. posters, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at I, the deep, the Blu-ray cover right now, and that's just fucking iconic. I still have fucking comics that you flip and throw me, get to an ad in the middle, it's just that poster, just a black background with just a close-up of the hook. Yeah. Coming soon. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, coming soon, that performance. Also, that's just in front of a wall. <laughs> Swear to God, that is just in front of a wall. But speaking of design, what a cool ship. I know. Jolly Rogers. Just go awesome. all the way with the over the top supervillain look. Just make it a skull ship. Just make it the Legion of Doom headquarters. This is the best villain layer of all time. Also, the movie food in this scene is impeccable. Oh, just just make Johnny Depp go against these guys next time. (sighs) You and me both, Hook. Also, Jamie, going back to that um, deleted scene uh, you were talking about earlier, another uh, piece of dichotomy kind of goes along with that is this, where Hook has... All of the real food, this lavish buffet, but he's completely by himself. And the Lost Boys are, of course, eating a bunch of fake food, but they're all together and having fun. I've never picked up on that. That is kind of amazing. <laughs> I get very deep into Hook, okay? <laughs> Quit trying to shame me for eating pizza alone in my apartment. It's all awesome. I'm saying. We all eat pizza times, alone. The amount of times Mike has told us that all the jagged pieces of his life have come together into a mystical whole. <laughs> I love Hook's dialogue in this movie so much. I know. Can you believe this was almost David Bowie? Uh, really? I don't know if that would have been better. Like, it would have been different. But I don't I, think I he don't would have hemmed it up in the same way. No, would he, would have, fit, he would have been right? more of Jareth again. Like, maybe more of a hammy Jareth. But it wouldn't have been the same. Honestly, I think Hoffman's performance um, is like gravity to the rest of the film. (laughs) Because if you don't have, like, Hoffman's performance, everything is just flying all over the place, tone-wise. And, like, Williams' stuff is just... No matter how silly the stuff around it gets, he's still very serious. And so if you don't have this stuff, it's like... If you don't have these two just being a couple. (laughs) I like how that's not even subtext. They just talked while filming. Like, no, Smee and Hook need to be an elderly gay couple. Because that's what (laughs) J.M. Barry would have wanted. (laughs) I'm more confused about the fact that they felt it was necessary for, like, there to be a suicide scene in here. I love that so much. He's such a drama queen. Kids will love this. <laughs> Hook will just try and blow his fucking brains out. I always found that deeply amusing as a child, so maybe that says something about my upbringing. Same. It's not until you get older, like, oh, that's what's going on. Also, man, what kind of magic bullets is he using? It didn't sink the ship, it just started on fire. <laughs> Villain bullets. What's going wrong in this fantasy world? Bullets don't make sense. All the mirrors. <laughs> okay, look at this. Darth Hoffman is, do, is like doing performance for every mirror somehow. 
Like, how is that possible? It's kind of amazing. His many, many boots. Also, the movie makes no bones about the fact that uh, people have died. A lot of people have died in this world. I think Hocus they, they, they so many children. Oh, yeah. I think they go into it a little bit more uh, when Peter looks around his old bedroom. <laughs> Sun Dutch angle. Uh, <laughs> uh, and he, he finds all the beds that haven't been used for years. And they're just kind of abandoned. And those are the kids that Peter used to have adventures with. Did they leave that world? Or were they murdered by Hook? Probably Hook. <laughs> Again, this is a surprisingly dark film that also includes a scene where pirates throw a baseball game to make a <laughs> child happy. I mean, we never do see Tiger Lily. Yeah, they, they try to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah. I just assume she's off smoking weed in a cave somewhere. <laughs> which is book accurate, by the way. <laughs> Look it up. Yeah, it's it, this isn't really if you, Spielberg was very aware of this, I think. But if you take away a lot of the uh, childlike aspects of it, just all just to remove a little bit of tonal confusion, it is purely an adult like Peter Pan movie. It's just very, which is a strange concept, but it's like totally not for kids. Oh, I've been waiting for the opportunity to bring this up because this is all I could think about during the rewatch, if somebody just described this movie to you beat by beat, this would sound like the most epic goddamn movie in the world. Cause like, think about it. An adult Peter Pan being trained by Tinkerbell for one last battle with Captain <laughs> Hook for the fate of Neverland, where a rival has risen in his absence to lead the lost boys, declaring that he is the Pan now. <laughs> Sounds like a, the greatest comic book of all time. It does. <laughs> That's why I think makes uh, Hook special is, yeah, you can overlook the parts that don't quite mesh together. You can overlook the tone problems and Steven Spielberg laying a bit too much of the Amblin cheese on here. There is something deeply satisfying about this movie to me, just on a storytelling level. This is such a weird sequel to Heavyweights. <laughs> you get that vibe, too. Yeah, I love that shot of Rufio. So amazing. But yeah, you cannot, oh, Arthur shot. <laughs> you cannot make the argument this movie does not have really unique things to say. Most movies just don't say. Yeah. Like it's kind of a, a recontextualization of the meaning of Peter Pan in a different view that most that stories just don't really tell. Like that like I said, that kind of in between place of adulthood and childhood. Most are just, you know, re-embrace being a child again, and you'll be happier. This, this yeah. has a more complicated uh, kind of fable to it. Oh, God, compare this to Kick the Can. Yeah. Like two completely different Spielbergs telling a story there. But... This kid's performance is amazing, by the way. <laughs> They're going to kill you, Peter! 
Play with us. Look how some bugs. Horsies. Birthday. Boobs. They they did paint a smiley face on <laughs> Peter <laughs> with uh, his nipples as eyes, so. They knew what they were doing. Birthday. There's one sign that just says birthday. <laughs> God, I want that so badly. <laughs> oh, in the hall of great pop culture paintings <laughs> next to the Osborne and the Kramer. <laughs> and then just and one the for... Wreck. <laughs> yes, and then one for Red Skull that's just turned around. <laughs> just lots and lots of paint on an easel beside it. <laughs> Uh, actually, it's interesting about this film is my father and I actually have such sentimentality of watching this together constantly. The fact we oh, still do it occasionally to this day. And I think this is actually a very quintessential father-son film. Very much so. Was you your know, father... I watched with my dad when I was a kid. A pirate? Yes, Cody, he was a pirate. <laughs> now it makes sense. That's why Mike lives on the seven seas. <laughs> Do you know Aquaman? Can you give, like, I, I want his autograph. I want to say, my man, Sue Cody, my man. Signed, Aquaman. Yeah. So speaking of dichotomy, I love Peter learning to how to be a kid and Hook trying desperately to appear like an adult for five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, I think you really hit on something that makes this movie special to the people it's special to is Hook is one of those movies you either grew up with or you didn't. Yeah. But for those of us that did grow up with it, like it, it is one of those perfect movies that parents can share with their kids. Like we were talking about with E.T. earlier, it's something that has a little bit of something for everybody and – both the parent and the adult can get something it can get two completely different profound things from this movie so this kid's vacant stare always gives me the willies you know this kid under is under the cult leader's grasp this kid is still in the 90s Forever at this age. Oh, it's like trapped in the, the Phantom Zone. Yeah. Wasn't it uh, the, the actress who played Maggie? This was like her only film credit, wasn't it? I believe so. And I, I believe the, uh, the, I don't know the, the names of the uh, children actors. Uh, I don't think either of them went on to do much after this or to become full-time actors. I think they did a couple of things, maybe, and then cold of the day. Yeah, the actor who played Jack is in a couple things in the 90s. Um, look it up again because I don't remember. Holding baseball. my head. Mostly. <laughs> uh, Charlie Corsmo. Corsmo. Oh yeah, he was the kid in Dick Tracy. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. He's still working. Oh though. my god. He's 40 years old now. Yep. Oh wow. He had a break. Uh, he was in Can't Hardly Wait, which I love that fact so much. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then not in anything again until uh, something called A Chain for Life from last year. So he went hook, I don't... can't hardly wait, and then something from 2018. I, I really don't like the fact that he is now 40 years old and has two children. 
That is crazy. It's, it's, it's weird me out. Oh, he was on the night show with Johnny Carson. And he looks exactly the same. Same height. <laughs> okay. Can I say that one of my uh, cherished memories uh, from the past couple of years is sitting at a table at a restaurant, having the waiter put down all of the plates, <laughs> and then saying, now just use your imagination to eat the food, like in Hook. <laughs> all right. I want to get into the food scene, but just just the, oh, he's in What About Bob? Okay. Yep. What about Bob? Weird. What about Bob? Uh, I, I'm looking at some of the other things. Post-acting career listed on his Wikipedia. Uh, in May 2011, it was announced that Cosmo had been nominated by President Barack Obama for member of the Board of Trustees of the Barry Goldwater Scholarship and Excellence in Education Foundation. Because of Hook? Because of Hook? Uh, also at Yale, he's a member of the Federalist Society, an organization for conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students. Look at what these goddamn pirates did to our sweet boy. <laughs> What would Tracy think? My God. Everything he taught you about the social contract. Hook Hook ruined this man. The scene made me so hungry as a child when I would watch it. Like just as a child, for some reason, seeing people eat blue globs of probably like molten sugar. It's <sighs> like that's that's it. That's that's the feast. That's what I want, what those kids are having. As an adult watching it now, I'm like, dear God, why, why isn't there any Pepto-Bismol at this table? <sighs> I've become Peter. <laughs> also, Julia Roberts burping is the most adorable thing in the world. So, I love this little tidbit I found online. Apparently, the nickname for Julia Roberts throughout production was Tinker Hell. Because of uh, the miserable time she had and gave everyone else on the production of this film. She kind of had, like, uh, an Ian Kellen kind of... Basically, like, The Hobbit, you know? Gandalf wasn't in all the scenes with everyone else. They didn't use forced perspective anymore. He was just CGI'd into stuff. And Ian McKellen hated it. It was, it was not a good time for him. That's essentially the same situation here. Tinkerbell can't be filmed on the same set as everyone else because she's so small. Like, they have to do special sets just for her, and then they have to optically put her into everything else. As an actor, that's got to suck. you got, like, all these great big names, and you're off by yourself on a separate stage trying to act against people you don't see or you'll never really work with. Yeah. And her personal life was collapsing at the time. This was the weird period for Julia Roberts. This was the period where she was hospitalized for exhaustion. <laughs> and, uh, God, who? She had a near marriage. Keith was Sutherland. It, uh, Keith Sutherland. That <laughs> yeah, she almost, that. she almost wrecked, I think, the production of this movie because that's when she took off to, it to California or something randomly and, like, disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah, like, the Spielberg apparently had to call her and threaten to fire her from the production if she didn't show up and start shooting her scenes right away. Which is weird to imagine Spielberg laying the law down. From all the interviews I've seen with the guy, he just doesn't strike me as the disciplinarian kind of dude. But again, I, I don't know what he's like on set. It could be just a completely different situation. But my I've mental heard... picture of the guy, I can't imagine him being like, you get your goddamn ass on this set or I'll murder you. 
for pretty much every story I've heard about Julia Roberts, she is very, very mean. So I could see him taking uh, off the gloves with her. Yeah, it's uh, they, they, it comes out every once in a while. It's kind of sad. But God damn it, she's an amazing actress. <laughs> I have to admit, I honestly think Pan is my, like, Hook is my favorite role of hers. Same, I, actually. The... These characters never... are eating toothpaste. Yeah, delicious, delicious like toothpaste. That might just be mashed potatoes with food dye in it. I'm not sure. As a child, that looked like just fucking heavenly food. Dying, As an adult yeah. now, I'm like, none of this seems like stuff I want to put in my body. Yeah. As an adult, all I can think is that is suspiciously close in color and consistency to the goop he was swimming in earlier. <laughs> it has to come from somewhere. Ooh. Also, um, my two favorite Julia Roberts performances. Um, of which there are many good ones. Um, this and Weird Pull, Mystic Pizza. <laughs> oh, yeah, you got some... There are some Mystic Pizza heads out there. It's a, be- a be- beloved VHS classic. <laughs> it's good, goddammit. I'm, I'm frantically running to IMDb so I can form opinions on Julia Roberts' career. Honestly, this and Ocean's Eleven are the only two movies I've seen her in where... I thought to myself, okay, I can see it. Not that she's <laughs> bad she's playing in herself. anything. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I've never understood her why she was briefly the biggest actress in the world. The it except girl? for yeah, those like two that. movies. Yeah, like the, uh, the, the it actress period. I never quite understood that myself. I mean, she's great. And she's great in everything, don't get me wrong. But, like, if you're looking for, like, sheer charisma stuff... It's like her performance in Pretty Woman's great and everything, but it's weird. Just took took a second, like let's just cock our head randomly at, at Julia Roberts. <laughs> Remember Mirror Mirror? She's not in anything anymore. It's easy. It's the easy target. She was. Hey, she was just in a Smurfs movie a few years back. She Smurfs, was? The Lost Village. She was Smurf Willow, 2017. <laughs> wow. What end? It's weird to think, like, only, like, 13 years ago, Julia Roberts having a baby was the most important goddamn thing more. <laughs> I was like, Beyonce getting pregnant. Oh, God, I forgot Flatliners. Flatliners? She was also very good in Flatliners. That was probably my third favorite. Even though I, even though it's like she's really good, I find her completely miscast in that role. Like, can you find uh, someone amazing in a role but completely miscast at the same time? See, I'm surprised at the number of Julia Roberts movies I have not seen. You haven't seen Runaway Bride? What's wrong with you? I have actually seen that one. Uh, Mona Lisa Smile. Uh, I have seen that one. But I have not seen The Pelican Brief. I haven't seen I Love Trouble, Ready to Wear, Something to Talk About, Mary Riley, Michael Collins, Everything Says I Love You, Conspiracy Theory. Surprisingly, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen her episodes of Murphy Brown, Notting Hill. It's a lot here that I haven't. Oh, hey, The Mexican. I remember that. Oh, yeah. Okay, am I the only one mystified by this child 
pretending to be an 80-year-old man acting as a child. <laughs> like, there's so many layers going on here. It's very off-putting. What's going on with this lost boy? Why he became the pan. No one cared who I was till I put on the hook. The only awkward uh, rear projection shot, but... <laughs> I, I wish kids' movies or films that had children didn't require them to just randomly sing. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like Where Are You Christmas finally put the, the last nail in the coffin for that. Also, his double cigar. <laughs> I just don't understand why this is such a common thing. Like, well, we've got a kid in our movie. Let's force them to sing, even though they're not a professional singer. Awkward. Disney. It's also like a left. It's also just a leftover like Disney thing. Yeah. It's moments like this where it's like, okay, I love Hook. Hook is a really, really good movie in my opinion. Stuff like this keeps it from being a truly great one. Yeah, ease off the sincerity gas there, Spielberg. I'm sorry, I was writing Five Goes West again, and I got lost and confused. <laughs> and the... Just cut no, I'm going to go on. Say, just cut out the close-ups of children going, Peter! <laughs> but you were saying? The, um... I was going to say, as we haven't mentioned it, the song is a leftover from when Spielberg was originally developing this in the uh, mid '80s. Um, it was a, he originally wanted it to be a. It was very different. Uh, originally wanted it to be a musical, um, yeah. and Williams wrote like that's when Williams did the originally wrote all the music for that you are hearing essentially, at least most of it. And he wrote a full goddamn musical that's just sitting in a drawer somewhere. Um, he just pretty much took the instrumentals from what he wrote and used it to score the picture. And yeah, the kind of the two songs that appear here are the ones Williams uh, put together for that musical version. They just somehow stuck around here. <laughs> Mike, do you want to talk about who was very, very briefly going to star in the Steven Spielberg musical version of Peter Pan. Andy Circus. <laughs> Michael Jackson called Steven Spielberg a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I love this so much because of why he's not in the movie, which is I can only imagine their conversation went this way. He explained the plot to Jackson, and Jackson said, No, I want to be Peter Pan. <laughs> That's what happened. He did not want to play an adult Peter Pan. He wanted to be a 10-year-old boy. So he lost interest in the project when he could yes. not be the actual Peter Pan. My favorite part of this, though, and I have seen no sources confirming it, so it's just weird internet gossip, but I'm going to report it like it's fact. After that call where, where Jackson understood he was no longer interested in the role, uh, Vanity Refair reported that the singer didn't take the news well and tried to wreak vengeance upon Spielberg via a deadly voodoo curse. <laughs> you know what? It's real to me. It's real this to me. According to, 
moviephone.com hook steven spielberg facts is reporting this is one of their facts so it has to be true is that why he bought the elephant man bones (laughs) (laughs) just to get back at spielberg That is Captain Hook gleefully explaining to a little boy how he gutted a fellow pirate and took his clock. <laughs> so I love how the backstory for Hook in this movie was technically thought up by the screenwriter's eight-year-old son. Because <laughs> he just showed him a drawing of Hook escaping TikTok. <laughs> I should point out, I don't think we brought it up when we were talking about heart. Mike, what other beloved 90s what fest did this screenwriter give us? <sighs> okay, so. James V. Hart. The V stands for Gave us the magnificent piece of cinema that changed our lives forever. Each of us, honestly. Even MB, who's not here. Bram Stoker's Dracula. (laughs) And he wrote Branagh's Frankenstein and redeemed himself (laughs) with Muppet Treasure Island. Oh, which is ironic because I always mix up memories of Hook and Treasure Island, right up to always thinking Tim Curry plays Hook in this thing. Imagine the crossover movie where, like, in the background, there's just Muppets doing their own thing. That's how you make it a great movie. So I want to say That's he it. did not You're... write Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, he produced it. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is somehow worse. <laughs> so he stood by and he signed off on the whole thing. You let this happen, you monster! So, uh, let me, oh, let me put, let me pull this up. Okay, so. Book. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Muppet Treasure Island. Contact. <laughs> Jack and the Beanstalk, the real story. Which I vaguely remember was a TV miniseries. Um, Tuck Everlasting, Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, Sahara, The Last Mimsy, August Rush, Epic, uh, Jim Button and Luke the Engine Driver last year, and he has 10 upcoming projects. So this dude makes bombs. He's a bomb factory. That's what he professionally does. He makes bombs. Pretty much. And but I can't tell. It's like, what is his quality all over the place? I don't understand. I like how he also did August Rush. So he got Robin Williams at the height and the lowest point of his fame. Yeah. That might explain why Williams is in it. I would like to point out, a moment ago, we got one of the classic jokes. Two people in one trench coat to make a normal-sized person. <laughs> Lost boy, man! <laughs> I can't believe Perfect I fell point. for Lost boy, man! <laughs> also, pirates are playing baseball. 
Also, and the what I of like money is... they had to spend to make this feasible. This is a gigantic <laughs> set. <laughs> also, he totally got Muppet Treasure Island because of Hook, and that's fascinating. <laughs> but got nothing from Bram Stoker's Dracula. I wonder why. <laughs> I like how we keep talking about tonal problems in this movie and laying it at Spielberg's feet. And <laughs> we like, neglect no. to mention that this is the guy who gave us, do not see me. <laughs> yeah, his entire career is just a graveyard of tonal inconsistency. <laughs> I mean, if you if you read between the lines, Spielberg's complaints about the film really are focused on the fact that he wasn't comfortable with the story. Yeah. Let's break it down. He didn't like the script. He didn't feel comfortable with what was going on in the middle of it and just went with it anyways and figured he could overcompensate in different ways. Is that necessarily Spielberg's fault? I mean, he's running the production at the time, but movies are... Oh, God. Someone just got murdered stealing face. (laughs) I love Uh, that joke so much. (laughs) Also, the hook flag. I've never noticed that. The hook flag. (laughs) I think Spielberg thought he could pull a Temple of Doom, where he didn't really yeah. care for the, the tonal problems of the script, but he figured he could fix it on the day. Mm-hmm. And But Temple of Doom was just a smaller production than this. This is way too many moving parts for him to try to just throw in a couple small moments to try to yeah. hone, it in to, hone it in closer to something coherent. But uh, one thing I think we always do, too, is when a movie fails, we typically like to point at one person and go, oh, this guy couldn't do it, or there's a failing in one person that made it happen. Which is probably the wrong way to think of it, considering how many hundreds of people work on every movie. Yeah. And if one facet's bad, that was also reviewed and facilitated on by so many other people. There, There's a lot of blame to go around. The intensity. Baseball, baseball, baseball. See, as a kid, this is so impacting because, you know, I'm sure you guys did some sports as kids or, I don't know, some sort of after-school activities where it felt like the most most important thing in the world, like you going to that game and doing good or making a tackle or hitting the baseball. And as an adult now, I'm like, God, what a fucking waste of time. I was in, like, some games that had, like, 40 people in the stands where no one wanted to be there. They always wanted to go home and have a beer. I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty disinterested in most professional sports. The only time I'm ever emotionally invested is when I know a guy on the field. Eh, I thought you were going to say when pirates are playing. Same. When I know one of the pirates. Okay, so... Before we started the podcast up, we were talking about the NBA celebrity baseball ga- or basketball game. <laughs> Imagine if they got rid of that and they just replaced it with pirates. They just have a pirate basketball game once a year, like actual people, pirates, like from people, Somali. Yes, they. Uh, I want no. I want like stereotypical ones. I want people with peg legs and hook hands trying to handle basketballs and courts. Oh no, no! I want. I'm the captain now. <laughs> That'd be terrifying. What if we had modern pirates versus old pirates? Yeah, that's where we go. Led by Black Manta. <laughs> so we saw a brief weird moment, previous sequence, that kind of, that just sounds something I never really picked up about this movie. 
until rewatching it as an adult this week, which is there's a weird abandoned subplot in this movie that's seemingly, I guess, from a one of the revisions that just le- got left in, which is there being this weird dairy disease attached to Neverland, yeah. where the characters are literally forgetting that they have a home or who they were before they reached here. Like we have uh, uh, Peter's daughter just randomly blur- blurting out, Neverland makes you forget. <laughs> apropos of nothing earlier. And that moment where Jack seemed like he was being reminded that he did not actually live in Neverland, which isn't really established anywhere else. And later on, we'll get a very bizarre scene where Peter forgets that he's a dude with kids for five minutes. <laughs> and it's not explained why his memory was suddenly erased. It's it's very odd. Yeah, it's something that definitely another draft I think would have honed in on more, if not abandoned. But it does play into the overall like themes and subtext of Neverland representing kind of eternal youth and and fun for Hook even like Hook's thing is just being Hook all day, as we all want to. Um, <laughs> Show us the Hook. So it's it's something that does play into that subtext, and for uh, for what Peter's going through, and for what Hook's going through, and kind of seeing its effect on the kids and how that plays up. But it just is so randomly placed, where it's like if you dig deep, you can see like okay, I get what they're going for, but why is it there? It feels like something from a much longer movie. Yeah. Like, if this were Hook the miniseries, that would be, like, an hour-long thing. Yeah, I love this movie. It's very bloated. Oh, yeah. Like, this little subplot of Tinkerbell just being in love with Peter. Tinkerbell wanting to fuck. What a weird little side. Anyways. Another movie. Another move was just, like... What's my uh, burgeoning sexuality or something? <laughs> More mermaids. But if we can rewind a scene to go off of what other movies would do, the fact that we had a near confrontation between Peter and Hook and they didn't actually do anything is a little stunning. If you look at most movies, they have the, the concept that, okay, every so many minutes you need to have an action beat or a big story beat that gets people involved and keeps them hooked onto the movie. Uh-huh. For, for Hook, a longer film... I, I can almost feel like there's got to be some producer somewhere at the time who's just yelling, no, Hook and Peter have to fight, and Peter gets his butt kicked, and then this is, you know, where he hits rock bottom, and he turns it around and learns he has to fly. But in this movie, he just realizes he's got to fly before he can take on Hook, and he, he just runs away of his own volition. Which is a simpler way to do it. Like, there's no real reason to have an action beat there for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like most movies would be like, okay, this is the part where Rocky has to lose to a second-rate boxer so he can refocus his training and then come back and win the championship. Well, I love how Peter's all-is-lost moment here is just realizing how much Jack seems to prefer Hook as a father. Yeah, it's it's an emotional beat than instead of an action beat. 
uh, also uh, going back to how the broad strokes of this movie are epic as hell peter was just led to a cavern of self-discovery by his own shadow like he's Luke <laughs> the shadow <Parker. laughs> of the man he used to be exactly some epic shit and now for some weird flashback shit so, flashback that doesn't quite track with the narration. None of it makes sense. Like, they, they wrote the script and said, fuck it, we can't redo this. So, Peter's a baby. Like, he's <laughs> he's a baby. And he's remembering this full conversation that his mother is having and decides he doesn't want to grow up. So, he somehow forces the wind to push his carriage away and make him <laughs> disappear from society until someone picks him up, Tinkerbell picks him up, and... I like this, so I ran away. You're a baby! You didn't run away! Your carriage rolled down a hill! Everything about this screams a producer told us we had to have a visual accompaniment for that monologue. Right. And then this is straight just, up Tinkerbell just stealing a baby. Tinkerbell steals a baby, <laughs> takes it to Neverland, where he grew up some. Apparently in Neverland you can grow up to be a child, and that's okay. This whole thing becomes confusing because in Neverland, he kind of becomes an elf. Like, he gets pointy ears and magic powers. Peter's not really supposed to have an origin story. I mean, it makes sense it's, with the you know overall vibe that they're going with, but for the story, but it's still, you know. Also, like, this terrifying vampire origin for him. I would just come back and find windows that were open to allow me in. A <laughs> closed fair, window was one I couldn't... That's just Peter Pan. That's He's just, a very... That's just Peter Pan. Yeah. There, there was a reason he was originally the arch-villain of Fables. Peter Pan is a creepy fucking character if you remove the romance from it. He was also a villain in that uh, terrible ABC show, Once Upon a Time. Hey, look, oh, it's Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow in, like, her second screen appearance. <laughs> well, hello, Goop Commander. <laughs> this is before the insanity for yeah, the diamond it, dildos in, in <laughs> you, the original Peter Pan wasn't it too that they would teach lost boys to fly by like throwing them in the air and not catching them so, I like, think so. they just landed in the sea and drowned Peter would be like oh fuck them I think so and Tinkerbell is kind of evil and also they smoke pot in one scene the original book is a trip i recommend Sorry, just that horror reaction oh old <laughs> it's been like Make three years wendy just... jesus christ what happened <laughs> living in london is tough in the 1800s i like how it's like a a, a tragic stephen moffat doctor who episode at this point oh i was on him the tardis for a few minutes that's it the timing is so weird here like he comes back oh, i have a grandchild now i'm old and peter's like what the fuck did i miss <laughs> Okay, that is literally just how the book ends. <laughs> so Peter, Peter just got tied up with some shit. It's also very disturbing that Maggie Smith is like, please don't kiss my daughter, she'll love you. And he's like, ah, I'm going to do it anyways, old lady. The humanity. Love Shack, baby, love Shack. I mean, the sad memory there was essentially like, hey, I had a crush on a girl and she got old. 
So now I'm boning your granddaughter. Oh, Peter Pan is a character uh, born of childlike uh, happiness and innocence. It makes sense that he dies in a moment of heartbreak while also accepting you know, the responsibilities of the adult world. So what's your uh, fart joke to follow that one up with, Cody? I didn't have one. I'm very frustrated about this. <laughs> also, yeah, it seems like this are like, yeah, this emotionally only plays to adults. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's not something a child, I think, would be like, yeah, I get where he's coming from. Peter's sad because these are melancholy things that have happened to him. But he flies, like, immediately afterwards, so the kid gets over it. Yeah, this part of the kid's like, oh, sweet, okay, I understand the joy of flight. And this is happening, a John Williams, Peter Pan the theme is soaring. <laughs> like it's... Uh, this theme that was used in a hundred movie trailers. Okay, here's another odd little bit. Pretty much a staple of Steven Spielberg movies is, like, the, the Steven Spielberg wonder shot, where, you know, he pans in, and there's normally a child with kind of their mouth agape, just, oh... This one has wondrous things happening. Like, that would have been the perfect time to have the traditional shot with Peter flying for the first time. But we don't really get that. We get more traditional reaction shots of the kids just being excited. Which is an interesting little omission. It's, uh, it's... What's funny is the way this is edited, every production company, until today, looked at this scene and went... Okay, so we need to edit all of our trailers forever, like this scene. <laughs> God, the magic. And that is Robin Williams playing an adult Peter Pan, and it's perfect. <laughs> and it's weird how angry people were at the time. Though people, a lot of people are legitimately angry because Peter Pan's traditionally played by um, a woman, like a young woman. And I don't think a lot of people who were angry understood why Peter Pan, Peter Pan was usually played by a young woman in plays. <sighs> no, I want Tilda Swinton, <laughs> which would be don't fascinating. Her. That would be fantastic. She could pull it off. Uh, returning to the broad strokes of this movie, we get to the point where the pretender to the throne submits, giving Peter his <laughs> sword back and declaring that he is, in fact, the Pan. The fucking glory. <laughs> I love the movie trilogy that takes place in Hook. That's another cool thing about William's performance. He talked a little bit about it. This is the only time we really get William is playing, like, kind of like an action guy. Because he does play, like, Peter Pan how you'd expect him, like, in a, in a way you'd expect Robin Williams to play him, like, fun-loving, like, you know, big kid kind of thing. But Williams wanted to give him, like, because of the sword fighting, because of what Peter Pan represents, he wanted to have, like, a... Uh, an air of, of danger and, like, edge to him. Which Peter Pan does traditionally have. Like, he's not... 
not really a dark character or anything, but like he's kind of got a devil make hair sort of action hero thing going on. And it's he's cool to see William. Yes. And it's cool to see Williams like play that. Because you don't see Williams that get to play like a fucking action guy very often. Uh, so Jumanji's the closest. Yeah. Right. One thing I want to touch on here, because I keep seeing the moons and I keep getting bothered by it. Just imagine the tidal forces at play here. There's like three <laughs> moons all very close to this land. I don't understand how the pirates are alive. There has to be horrible things happening here. And whose credit card did she steal? It was Hooks. It's uh, it's Julia Roberts' credit card. This is the same universe as Ocean's 12. <laughs> I like to think that the uh, four moons are the reason we never see anything else outside of Neverland. Like, this is a separate planet that's just all ocean. <laughs> And the radiation prevents aging. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, when the tide comes in, no wonder the pirates are so popular. Only the people on boats will survive. <laughs> and if you oh, can't fly, you drown. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's setception. I think we just found the plot for, like, Pitch Dark 5. This time, Riddick's on a planet all ocean. Once pitch the tide wet. comes, pitch wet. <laughs> Once the I'd tide the comes in, it's all water for the next three years. Also, there's sea monsters. Oh god, just two hours of Riddick surviving in a deep sea diving suit. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I, I was joking when I came up with this pitch, but now I really want to see it. That would be the tits. <laughs> Somehow they make Bioshock. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bioshock with Riddick would be amazing. I don't even know I'd react to that. Like, what a weird combination of <laughs> cartoon video game prospects. Hey, we, we have escaped from Butcher Bay, so uh, Riddick's already one foot into the video game world. It's feasible. Oh. Also, also just God, to literally nothing in this scene work. <laughs> I know, just to no. avoid talking about whatever this scene is completely. Another weird thing... Um, the pinpoints Spielberg having such an odd, complicated relationship with this film is I re was reading an interview where he was talking about like if he would do this today, like he was talking about like you know building the sets and all that. If he did did this today, like he'd take the actors, put them in a completely like digital environment, do everything yeah. with computer effects and. Spielberg has no idea what to feel about this film at all. <laughs> like, it's so <laughs> odd to hear him say stuff like that. It's like, I'm sure that would look nice. Like, Spielberg can blend effects very well, but it's like, no. Also, that's the coolest damn effect. The I know. The suit-up scene here is uh, <laughs> fascinating. More shit that would it. be ruined with CGI. Yeah. So, really, let's look at things here. We are about to go into a pirate war where people will die. Like, they just start stabbing people left and right. Like, pirates are falling down dead. But we get a very cartoony setup where people literally make guns that shoot chicken eggs that have chickens on top of them. There is just a weird hodgepodge of serious and dark going back and forth. And we'll get this even into the end fight. The, the big climax when Hook and Pan finally battle... Like, there's cartoony bits back and forth. Then all of a sudden, Rufio dies, and it's very, very serious, and Peter decides he needs to go home to be with his family. It's very serious. 
it's it's I don't know. It's it's tough to get my head around. It goes from very childish, like the Never Boys themselves, like this part here with Peter cutting an outline into the sail, to very dark. Like characters die, there are consequences. We have to grow up. Well, I think that's Peter Pan in a nutshell. It's no. scrappy childhood innocence versus the harsh, violent realities of the real world. Also, going back to that uh, that magic hour time in film I was talking about, that stuff like you know the Goonies and all that. That's that's also a very like late eighties, definitely nineties tone of, um, particularly like Family Fair, where you get a lot of like cartoony stuff to kind of uh, hide really, really dark elements. Well, God, remember, You Killed Rufio was a trope until, like, 2003. Yep. (laughs) And I I suppose, too, a lot of the thing is, there's kind of an immature sense of humor to go along with this whole battle sequence until the moment of Rufio's death. And that's when Peter makes his about face and realizes he needs to go home with his kids. He can't do all these fun and games anymore. So the tone makes sense to switch at that point. It's just a little weird they decided to fridge Rufio to make it happen. Also, never talk to me or my scurvy son ever again. (laughs) (laughs) I love this so much. Look at Hoffman ordering his goons around like it's Batman. <laughs> stab, stabbed. And then like a We've 66 fight happens. I love William as being believable in a sword fight. That's impressive. Because they shaved yeah. off all that arm hair. Yeah. God, he's well, aerodynamic. <laughs> his best performance. Like, he gets to do so much. Well, I said earlier, that's what I love about Hook. It's the entire length and breadth of Robin Williams' career essentially also they didn't shave Williams's arms until he comes to Neverland like if you look at the start of the movie he's got very hairy arms and I think that's the real key Spielberg was getting hairier as he got older and it just made him think what if I could be a boy again and not have to deal with having nose hair (laughs) I mean we all relate oh it's very true on the other hand though now I can grow a mustache so you know I'm very frustrated at how movies portray hooks. This is a different subject, but it's one I have to rant about. Like, Hook just used his hook to cut a rope. But we've seen clearly only the point of the hook is pointy. The rest is just, you know, round metal. It's not a sword. Honestly, even the point is kind of round. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like a safety hook. But you, you see stuff like Candyman, where the Candyman in Candyman 2 punches the hook through a guy? Like, that's not how hooks work. I get very frustrated when I see people just assume hooks can do anything. Like, they're dangerous. <laughs> this has been Neil deGrasse Tyson. I can't help it. Really, every time I see a bad guy with a hook, I'm like, this is going to be bullshit. I just know it right now. So I feel like Ernest should be in here somewhere. It, this is a very <laughs> earnest third act. I can see Ernest wearing Peter Pan costume and just flying around, making strange faces. I mean, that actually happened in one of the movies. <laughs> also, Rufio and Peter Pan are battling back-to-back. Oh, with Final Transformation, Rufio?
Quick, give me the old chicken gun. It's funny, because I'm perfectly fine with the chicken gun. That makes sense in my head, sure. The chicken can poop out enough eggs to make this a constant battle. But the hook, no, I'm stuck on the hook. His, um, his magic electric hook that you have problems with. Or people that get blinded in a fight have to stop and be like, Ah, I can't see where to stab. I'm fine with all of that. Also, that chicken looks so dead. Uh, I'm, I'm very fine with all of this goofy stuff. But the hook is a step too far. I can't take it. Marvels. Can this be a character in Overwatch? <laughs> <laughs> I love how stunned Hook is. This isn't how I expected it to go at all. Do something intelligent. If I had a nickel for every time I've said that. <laughs> and that's just a kickoff for Smee to just rob the place blind. Do something smart. I'm taking the money and leaving. What about Smee? Oh god, we're getting the most horrifying effect ever. <laughs> Legs, no! Ah, oh, he's like a garbage pail kid. <laughs> he just looks dead to me. That's what's always disturbing <laughs> about that. It looks like a child's corpse. It's like Dragon Ball Z when someone decides to self destruct against the bad guy to stall for time. <laughs> <laughs> push, my push my corpse down the stairs. That'll slow him down. Go on without me. Win the day. <laughs> that, is a, that is a Cody move if ever there was one. No, Just we're doing pretty my good. lifeless body down the shelf. <laughs> Just throw me in the trash. <laughs> we're winning. Why, why, why do you want us to throw your corpse at him? Just do it. Remember me as a hero. I'm tired. I went to home. <laughs> they call me Corpse Man. <laughs> They say Cody spent his whole life going limp in preparation. Okay, this was the super soaker I spent my childhood dreaming of. They made a real one of that, where like you had a super soaker that would spray in three different directions so people couldn't sneak up on you on the sides. I never did own one, but I knew a kid growing up who had one. I was always very jealous. Although it had terrible pressure, so like the water went like three feet. Still seemed cool as hell. One day we're going to get together and have a real adult super soaker fight with one of those, like, $1,000 battery-powered soakers. Oh, yeah. To the death. I've told you guys a bunch of times, I want to, it's my dream to go find a playground, just take it over and have a super <laughs> soaker battle. Water balloons, like, Steal you know, it from the children. Or yeah, a cardboard war. That'd be great if you can combine them. Like, your cardboard gets soaked and falls off, you're just no, open to attack. my armor! Exactly. <laughs> I love Hook being aware of the legend of Rufio. <laughs> Waited for this day for so long. And let's face it, we all say Rufio like Hoffman. <laughs> I love that guy. I'm going to go throw my corpse at some enemies! I, I like this Count Olaf henchman all of a sudden. <laughs> Oh, this idea came up to me before, and I totally spaced it out till now. But just think how weird this is. It's, this is essentially a legacy sequel, something we've seen a lot of in current times, stuff like Tron Legacy, or uh, even the Star Wars films, where you bring back a beloved character who we last saw 
in the costume 20, 30 years ago. This feels like it should really be a sequel to an existing Peter Pan film from like the 70s or something. And it, it's funny because this popularized the idea, I would say, of trying to do that revisit movie. Oh, yeah. To expand upon the themes of the first one and what it means to grow past them. Years, be- like 20 years before, that was a super common popular thing for Hollywood to fall back on. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, Mike and I were discussing before the commentary, like, Disney, despite just kind of ignoring this movie for the long time, has kind of had a renaissance of remaking Hook. Over and over and over again. I mean, that's all Alice in Wonderland was. That's all Christopher Robin is, is taking the same idea of Hook and just trying it with different properties. Yep. I want that to be my last word so badly, by the way. Oh, man, we get that fun little one-liner and then a stab to the chest. And what a hammer to so many childhoods. Oh, that was... I still remember that the first time, that just making me gasp. A line we've always wanted to say to Robin Williams. Because let's face it, I mean, that's what Robin Williams represented to so many of us. Pretty much, yeah. I feel like you could have a lot of fun with editing that. I wish... Flubber was a better vehicle for you. <laughs> I wish you'd gotten the Oscar nom for World's Greatest Dad. I wish Aladdin 2 had been given the priority and money to go to theaters and you had reclaimed the character voice. I wish Disney had believed in toys. Uh. <laughs> toys is a very underrated film. That's the whole reason we did this commentary. I don't know why we didn't just do toys. The third act is amazing, anyway. <laughs> yeah, wasn't that the, the entire reason like Robin Williams and Disney had that huge split is he felt they dumped toys? Well, he was kind of on the outs with them anyways, just for – he had agreements in place on how he was supposed to be using Aladdin for the marketing of the movie. And Disney yeah. basically went back on all of those. Oh, uh, yeah. I remember that. Like, they're also, they recorded a ton of outtakes with them, too, and he basically made them swear they would never use them for anything. And who knows how long until Disney pulls those out of the vault. (sighs) Run, Shmi, run! The amount of Pirates of the Caribbean characters in that franchise that were just trying to recreate the magic of Shmi. Pretty much. God, I want to see Bar- Barbosa and Hook square off so badly. God. That's all I can think of when I watch like when I watch Stranger Tides was this is the one time we get to see <laughs> Barbosa be Captain Hook. <laughs> you cannot tell me Rush was not like I'm kinda I'm gonna kinda go for a Hoffman here. We we just missed some dramatic Dracula lighting on Robin Hood. <laughs> uh, Robin I Hood, fuck that. Peter Pan. But he walks between the sails and like the, the light glimmers right on his eyes for that emotional highlight. A trick that's worked ever since 1931. Except for normally it's the bad guys that get it. Or the shadow. God, I, I miss fucking when the hero and the villain would truly have their final confrontation in the movie. I know. Another weird thing this movie doesn't have is like a main number two henchman to represent Hook in battles until this point. Yeah. 
Like, we have not, Smee, but he's not a battle guy. Yeah, I would love to have seen fucking Bob Hoskins as Smee get down in a battle, though. Like, he kills Rufio. <laughs> Just thinking, like, every James Bond movie forever has always had that idea of, okay, well, there'll be the main bad guy, he'll be the brains, and we'll kill him last. But he should have a big, heavy henchman who's, like, the really exciting battle. That's not what this movie is, so I understand why it's not there, but it almost seems like it's missing. If this were made today, there would for sure be, like, a hook backup guy who would probably just have swords for arms or something dumb. Stop taunting him with memories of Laurence Olivier. Oh, no, it's Serenity all over. Wouldn't that be a trip if they just introduced this was actually all a dream? Like, he hit his head on the airplane, and then, like, none of this was real. Oh, they go full Total Recall with it? <laughs> yeah. They really pushed that idea there. What? The Rufio was a child that died on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> also, I wonder I how, like... how the movie would still work if they did go full, like, instead of just teasing it, they did go full, um, it is all just a dream. Because, I mean, still, the catharsis is the same. But it's yeah. um, it's a curious, like, what if, like, how does the catharsis still play? I feel like... Goddamn looks! <laughs> I feel like, uh, like, this wouldn't fly today because Disney would be like, we're getting a franchise. But um, anytime, like, after the early 90s, it probably would have just been a dream. Yeah. But uh, for whatever reason, uh, no, Hook's only weakness. Oh, the fear of the inevitability of death and aging. Ah! I love how that stayed consistent with that character for like 200 years. Um, yeah, the, 90, the early 90s were very obsessed with like every man characters transforming into characters from mythology in a literal sense. Like we had what the Santa Claus like two years after this. I, I kind of wonder if that was just movies trying desperately to tell superhero stories before modern superhero stories were really a thing they had a blueprint for. That was definitely part of it. Because uh, America fucking loves movies about people accepting mantles. <laughs> like built into our cultural mythology. Oh, yeah. That's why we worship the president so much. I've never thought of the presidency in that manner. Like, it's a superhero mantle that's passed down between person to person. Like a really? different run of a comic book. Like, oh, oh, uh, this is a different version of Spider-Man, one of the clones. I don't like this one. <laughs> I mean, that's how the presidency is kind of explained to us as kids, isn't it? Like, if you're really, really good and really, really smart and you try really, really hard, you will get the title of... Mr. President. <laughs> the Arch. We've wandered into Assassin's Creed.
thing that stands up to this movie, or stands out in this movie to me more so than anything else in the world, is this death. Oh, yeah. The, the death by falling crocodile was, in my recollection of the movie, that goddamn crocodile like made up 90% of the movie. Like I thought they were just constantly showing it and you know giving you a sense that something bad was going to happen. They really don't show it much. There's a shot or two every once in a while, but they, they don't really focus on it until right before it eats a guy. Yeah, it's the sound effect of it. I think that's what like burns it in our child brains. Well, as we've said before, with kids, a little bit goes a long way. And if you can make a strong impression, even in just a couple minutes of screen time, our little minds just take that and run with it. And our imaginations can fill in all sorts of blanks. As an adult, I'd probably watch that and be like, oh, well, it was a big clock monster. Oh, well, whatever. It's a, very child, it's a very child logic movie on very adult themes, which is... A combination that's kind of just unique to this. Also, Hook gets off easy on this one. In in uh, I think they should have played it where you just get stuck in the crocodile's stomach for... Like the Sarlacc pit. You get digested <laughs> over a, a period of a thousand years. These are my children now, Peter. I, I don't I don't like saying it that way. These are my children now. This makes it seem like a Freddy Krueger thing. <laughs> You're all my children. So I love how the the crocodile was still gigantic and slightly humanoid in a cartoonish early animated Disney sort of way, clearly when it was alive. <laughs> like, <laughs> nice touch. I mean, this is pretty much Spielberg doing a live action Disney cartoon. Something yep. that I can't believe isn't brought up more in it, when people are talking about how varied his career is. He directed a Disney cartoon. Yep. She's stealing them. I have to go back to being a businessman now. I can never fly again. He just becomes a cold-hearted corporate raider after this. <laughs> he just murders his business opponents with swords also this scene very affecting as a kid like oh, oh my yeah. god he's once again passing on the mantle hey, full circle and like as a kid you're like oh yeah definitely this this makes perfect sense as an adult I'm like well he got slightly more lines than the other lost boys so I guess that's why he's getting the sword but did we he ever can go dead it's a power. He can he can turn himself into a killing ball. <laughs> and of course, the fun little piece of trivia that I mean, it's everywhere, but uh, none of the only people who knew who was getting the sword was Williams and Spielberg. Mm-hmm. So everyone's react reaction is actually just live. Williams <laughs> actually chose who, which one of the which one of the characters would actually get the sword, the mantle. So when the kids are smiling, like, it's me, and then the camera doesn't show them again, it's probably because they were crushed. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually probably why he got more to do kind of just through editing. (laughs) This makes sense. Yeah. God, if only he had given the sword to Smee. (laughs) Now there's going to be some changes around here in old Leverland. 
First of all, ain't nothing going bangarang anymore. <laughs> We're full up on bangarang. Just turns into fucking Mad Max, the Peter Pan <laughs> edition. Smee's getting blown while he just hoists up the sword. <laughs> and now it's turned into heavy metal. Has Do not become should. addicted to the imaginary food. You will res- resent its absence. <laughs> Where's my fucking tit milk? I love how saying you'll resent the absence of the imaginary food is like some kind of paradox game. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think Peter squared this with the police? <laughs> nope, they're fine. They, I, No hook-handed man has absconded with children at all. It was a mistake. Also weird well, to I think, think that that leaf was practical. That's a weird thought. It's the little I things that always like trip me up in old movies. Like, oh, we we become so accustomed to going, oh, that's CGI. <laughs> uh, so I, I kind of think Cody, the police were more concerned with the senile flying man at the end of this movie, just upending every human being's like <laughs> perspective on how like. The laws of physics and God were. Jamie, Jamie, so are you saying this is, that the, this is the end of the, the Matrix? The, the, the direct <laughs> thing that happened after the ending of Hook, politically, political climate wise, is everything in Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. <laughs> I was gonna go with Watchmen, but same difference. Yeah, pretty much. I just like the idea of Peter Pan having to go to a Senate hearing. <laughs> Why is Lex Luthor trying to kill Peter Pan? And then a cannonball blows up the Senate building and Peter Pan does nothing. God is alive and he is American. Ah, pranks are pretty good, old lady. That was an odd bit of staging. Also this, that Peter just ends up in a totally different area than his children. So you can have this odd encounter with, with Shmee, like the real world version. I assume this is Shmee this... just got the fuck out of there. That's just his <laughs> job now. Earth ain't so bad. Also, just beneath this statue of Peter Pan smoking, I think? Oh, yeah. No, he's, he's playing a, a, an instrument. His Peter Pan flute? Yeah. I love how just cockney-ass Bob Hoskins as a sweep just looks like something from a Christmas movie. He really does. Bob Hoskins should have been Santa. Yet it took until Robert Zemeckis to cast him as Bob Cratchit. Hey, wait a minute. She's just talking about uh, flatliners there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no! And then we immediately segue into that. Why don't we talk about flatliners more? Uh, I mean, we did just get that reboot not too (sighs) long ago. Reboot sequel thing? Yeah. Yeah, what was the deal there with that? Nobody knows. They'd have to watch it first. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I was hoping one of you had, so I could just, you know. I almost did a couple times. Take your knowledge. 
I love Ellen Page. I don't like Ellen Page that much. <laughs> I heard they cut Sometimes down Sutherland's cameo quite a bit, and I lost interest. It was like, I'm only watching this for a Sutherland do. cameo. Back in the days where a cell phone could last three days. <laughs> Back in time when a cell phone would ring for more than seven seconds. See, I'm more frustrated because, like, every time I walk into a store now, people will have their phones on. But, like, the most popular ringtone I hear with old folks is one that sounds like a car horn. And these people always have their phone alarm, like, cranked to the max. So it just sounds like a semi has invaded Target. If you are in a public space and your phone is not on vibrate, you are the one of the worst human beings alive. I'm always so confused by that. It's like, I... I haven't had a ringtone since, like, 2010. Yeah. Society has moved on. I don't I don't even know what my ringtones are set to right now. What's really bad is I live in the South, so everybody's ringtone here is quacking noises. Mm. Oy. That is a terrible idea. Do you want Antichrist to happen? Someone's going to get pneumonia. Someone's going to fall out a window. Hook is going to come right back and steal your children. Peter do Pan you, might come in and fuck their lives up. Do you want Antichrist, Antichrist to happen? Honestly, that's this my favorite warning of all time. <laughs> right now Antichrist is going to happen to Peter Pan. I hope you like having balls, Peter. So who would crush Peter Pan's balls? Would it still be Charlotte Gainsbourg? <laughs> uh, no, P- uh, Tinkerbell becomes huge for one scene just to do that. God. I don't like Lars von Trier's Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> Not so, just a ghostly image of Rufio eating his own exposed guts saying chaos reigns. Bangarangs. Why are we ending on Fatty Christ jokes? Let's let's get back to Hook. Well, on the other hand, marbles. you have Toodles getting his marbles and then flying off into the sun. I don't know if that's happier. I mean, it's good that he's going to a place to die. <laughs> uh, it's like Bilbo at the end of the Lord of the Rings. He's he's sailing off to the Grey Havens. I believe They'll never is. stop my crime spree now. I'm the vulture. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it in um, Peter and Wendy that uh, Toodles and Wendy get married or something? I think so. Meanwhile, you know, in this version, she just watched them because he's senile. <laughs> also a confusing I... thing because he was supposed to be like one of the first orphans she took in. So, like... He should be 20 years younger than her. It's just best not to think about it. Yep. Also, I would love to see this scene with satanic score playing. (laughs) He is the one. Turns out he was the great red dragon all along. And then like 2000s, like new metal starts playing as he swoops by the camera. (laughs)
God, they're going to have to get so many wizards to blank out people's minds. <laughs> oh, God, he's gone out of control. He's going to oh. hit a plane. Someone stop Toodles. He's out of control. Oh, no, he hit the World Trade Center. Anyway. <laughs> Alternate ending. Just as he's flying out the window, it goes into slow motion, and they just pipe in ground control to Major Tom. <laughs> just get space oddity played out. Just five, four. As he's flying through London out of control, slowly leaving humanity behind as he flies into space. I've got a question for the action man. Dante Basco. It's an amazing name. Yeah, yeah, I can't argue that one. I really hope they find some way to bring him into the live-action Avatar series Netflix is cooking up. Oh, he plays Mako's character. <laughs> Just age him up or something. Make him Iroh. Just, uh, here, put on this gray wig. <laughs> I think he, he actually provided. <laughs> I was gonna say, I think he provided the voice of Iroh in uh, Korra. Some Avatar fan right now is like, "You idiot! You're wrong." I don't know why I imagine Avatar fans as being really grizzled, but also, I uh, I think I briefly mentioned this uh, closer to the beginning of the commentary, but. Dante Basco crowdfunded a Rufio prequel film, <laughs> which you can watch on YouTube right now. <laughs> that is amazing to me. Yeah, always he's only gone as far as far as a seventeen-minute version, but uh, he's he's still trying to uh, make a full uh, feature version. And honestly, it's awesome. It's just an awesome thing that's in existence right now. That's just a thing that, <laughs> that, that exists and as a concept. I like how there's only one intern listed for the art department. You go, Julian Napier. Just you. <laughs> Guys, we somehow made it through. A two-and-a-half-hour commentary for Hook. I'm so proud of us. And honestly, it still doesn't feel like it's been two-and-a-half hours. No, I've had a lot of fun. Hook is one of those movies I was really nervous about revisiting uh, as an adult just because of the general uh, feeling most people seem to have about this movie, about it just not holding up and being a movie that Kind of pisses people off whenever you bring it up in certain crowds, but no, Hook is a magical goddamn movie. It still has a place in my heart. I will blow this movie into oblivion. <laughs> Alrighty. If if you could blow a film so hard, you enter a realm called oblivion. Beyond time and space. That's how hard I will suck this movie off. Imagine that scene in Antichrist. 
<laughs> but yeah, I um horrible sex jokes about a children's film aside. I fucking love Hook, and I will defend it to my dying day, despite the se arguably serious issues it does have. Like, it's, oh, it's yeah. swimming in cheese, just melted cheese all over the place. And in some regard, uh, that's some of the best stuff. That's kind of what, uh, some of what's magical about Hook. And in some instances, not so much, a little too heavy in it. But, um,. It's more, it's more interesting than anybody gives it credit for, and I can totally understand when people don't dig it. Uh, it's, as I was kind of saying to Jamie before we, before we started recording, the, it, it works on such, like, specific wavelengths. Like, the emotions in the film, what it's going for, what it's trying to say, is so sincere, and so both subtle and to the point enough where if it doesn't resonate with you personally or doesn't even resonate resonate with how you process emotions then yeah I can totally see how it's just blank to you how it's just not good but if it does resonate to how you process emotions and to things you feel then you're going to unabashedly fucking love it and that's why there's that those polar opposite reactions. Yeah, very much so. If they could fix the hooks in this movie, <laughs> I think I could maybe come around. Well, I was hoping that was going to line up. <laughs> I was hoping that was going to line up slightly better, so the a Steven Spielberg film closing credit was going to go by right. I'm like, fuck this movie about its hooks. <laughs> that's not how fucking bicycles work and then hard close we don't even do like the hey if you like this show anyways if you like this show <laughs> you can find more box office pulp uh, on twitter at box office pulp you can find us on facebook we're on itunes if you want to drop by leave us a review we always appreciate that uh, stitcher blogspot just look up box office pulp and we'll be there Ding. Now, personal plugs. Anyone playing any gigs? Anyone Anyone got, like, a poetry reading? Maybe some uh, stand-up sessions? Oh, yeah. I've got a hard five over at the Laugh Factory uh, this weekend. Ooh. If we I say that sincere enough, people will just believe us, so you can actually just make yourself sound like a real celebrity. Oh, so you just <laughs> ruined it for Jamie. I did, yeah. Actually, he, she has a real five, and I'm just destroying it right now. No one's going to show up. <laughs> I workshopped that for years. <laughs> My one oh, chance, you son of a bitch. Lauren Michaels was going to be there. <laughs> I would fucking love it if we just out of nowhere segued into like a douchey, self-referential comedian podcast. Are we just talk about the doorman at Yuck Yucks for 45 minutes? I've been pushing for that for years. I mean, isn't that just what we do, but really just about our personal lives that have no point? Yeah. Anyways, folks, <laughs> thanks for joining us. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Bangarang. Sad bangarang. 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 You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Yeah.
This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself, we now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think so. Let's go with, like, image Odin. Well, look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn. He has Angela, who's like Lady Hercules. Yeah, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as Guardian, I think it's it's fair play. So. Hey, she's not technically as Guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has like a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs> 